Hello, willkommen, bienvenue, konnichiwa, ni hao, jambo, morhaba. It's time for the Armist Inquisition yet again, episode 197 on Sunday the 29th of August. I'm Armish Phil. I'm Armish Ben. I'm Armish Matt. And tonight we've got Peter McCoy here from michaellogos.world. How are we doing, Pete? Doing great, doing great. Good to have you here. It's an interesting subject which is, has been gaining traction over the last um, two or three years in particularly. Um, this this issue of uh, mycology, mycelium networks, and all the rest of it. Um, what is it about mushrooms? Do you think that makes them such a special, unique uh, organism? Is that the right word? Yeah. Well, oh, well, they're a branch on the tree of life, so they're they're their own kingdom, or myself and many others like to call it a queendom. Um, so, alongside plants and animals, bacteria, uh, archaea, we have fungi. So they're a huge group. Roughly 2 million species thereabouts, we think. So lots of them, and most of them unnamed. So that's kind of broadly what fungi are and get more into detail. But what's the appeal? Um, I mean, for me, there's tons of appeal. That's why I got hooked when I was a teenager and kind of haven't given up the ghost, you know, going on 20 years. Um, Because really they're interesting on many fronts and endlessly fascinating and eternally mysterious. Um, They're one of our least studied aspects, least understood aspects of the natural world. And as we've only started to unravel in just the last handful of decades with kind of better technology and more people looking around, uh, we're finding that they do a ton, 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 ton for the environment. Um, they kind of underlie all natural cycles and, and heavily influence many of them uh, in significant and unique ways. And then we're also really at this crux of human history where we're learning to cultivate them easier and apply them into the ways we live our lives and design you know, our societies, our homes, clothing, fabric, food, medicine, um, and bringing fungi greater into focus in those processes and finding new applications, great benefit, health benefits, environmental benefits, um, all kinds of things. So it's just, it's an emerging and exploding science that was for very long neglected in one of the sort of the least, least looked at natural sciences in many respects, and really kind of one of our biggest gaps in understanding the world. And as you know, the scientists have sort of figured that out more and more recently and been able to speak louder thanks to the internet. And then the amateurs and the uh, people sort of seen around the curve with it, kind of getting a little traction. More and more, you get people a little bit more in the mainstream and whatnot. Um, and of course, with more movies and what uh, what have you, kind of bringing attention to it all. Uh, all the benefits, all the excitement, all the interesting aspects of fungi you can talk about till you know the end of time um, are resonating with more and more people. And so. Yeah, I mean, we can go any direction with that. I mean, there's, I'm interested in all of mycology, you know, from the, the, the nitty gritty of the biology and the physiology and how mycelium grows, which is really weird and interesting and unusual, um, to their effects on human history and cultural development, to their applications for making the world more sustainable and, and us, loving, um, you know, reducing our impacts through pollution and things like that. 
What? Why do you think they've been sort of neglected for so long? Did did scientists back in the day just sort of write them off as like similar to a plant species and not much to see here? Well, you know, that's one of the big questions, not a great answer. I don't have a great answer for it, but we can speculate that one fungi uh, mushrooms are ephemeral. So they're not like a plant where you can predict where they'll be. They don't overwinter clearly as like, you know, a, a leafless bush or something. So to even find the same one year to year, predict it is actually quite hard. Um, you get some consistency, certain patches with like mushrooms, but a lot of the molds, a lot of the fungi that do some of the most important work for the environment are in the soil inside of plants. And so you don't even see them. So without microscopes and modern technology, we never even knew that they were there. Um, and then that's where some of the most ecological benefit comes. And so historically you had traditional people, you know, for thousands of years, picking mushrooms, different cultures did that a lot. A, a lot of cultures avoided them for any number of reasons, superstition, the fear of death or the association with decay is often a common excuse. Um, and I think there's a lot of discussion around the question of why a given culture had what we call mycophobia, a fear of fungi and why others didn't. I think it's actually really interesting sociological question, anthropological question, um, but in the West, you know, we, if we were thinking about Western culture as an easy inroad, um, at some point along the way, fungi were sort of just pushed out of conversation. The, the traditional knowledge of people, traditional peoples and traditional European cultures and things was formalized and written down about 250 years ago um, by Linnaeus and some of our famous early biologists. And that sort of codified this study of mushrooms and naming them and sorting them out, and that kind of thing. Traditional mycology, we call it. Um, and it kind of just stayed in that arena for about 200 years. And you only had a handful of players in the West furthering and reclassifying and detailing and naming new ones and things in the East. You had a lot of traditional use of mushrooms and being that being refined in like Chinese medicine, but because of the lack of cultural exchange and, and their knowledge base to some degree, you know, we didn't catch up on that till more recently. So again, in the West, it, it just sort of, as the science was looking at, you know, we got to name some stuff, but by and large is, especially you say, far Western European culture developed they, that fear and that disassociation with decay and morbidity um, arguably is one of the reasons they were kind of pushed out. You know, it doesn't make, it's an easy thing to say, you know, but any scientist, anybody, I mean, you see the benefit of growing plants out of soil, where does soil come from? It's decay. So it's not really clear how, who started that. Like, let's not look at these things because they're associated with decay. Right. You know, um, it's just, it's not a, it's an easy out, but not a great one for me. Uh, but regardless, it's somehow that kind of got, formalized or sort of placed into our Western culture where most kids are taught, you know, don't even look at them, let alone touch them. Uh, we don't learn how to identify them. Um, you know, there's a lot more deadly poisonous plants in the world than there are deadly poisonous mushrooms. <laughs> and a lot of plants can make you sick and all kinds of stuff. And a lot of plants look very similar, of course, but we don't have the similar fear ingrained in us. So, you know, a lot of interesting questions, a lot of taboos to sort of try to shake off is what I've tried to do over the years um, through showing how interesting and cool and weird and, you know, beautiful and important fungi are and just try to, change our languaging and thinking about them. Um, and, you know, other, people's have, other people have tried. Um, of course, the cultural revolution of the mid-20th century and the reintroduction of especially psychedelic mushrooms brought a new perspective on them and a different type of appreciation. But that only resonated with, you know, a certain aspect of society and also sort of almost pushed probably a lot of the other parts of society away from mushrooms because of the sort of associations there. So you had this sort of, you know, it's good and bad that that happened. Um, but again, we just kind of move forward through time and really it's thanks to the internet, better technology, DNA stuff, whatever, um, you know, uh, thankfully a handful of scientists were able to push some of our findings forward and promote them. And then Ted talks and things like this, um, the ball starts rolling and then you get a bunch of people that are excited, early adopters, um, such as myself, my peers, lots of people on Facebook and YouTube and just starting to talk about it, talk about it, talk about it. And 
when I was young, I was on the fringe. None of my friends got it. You know, I was kind of just going saying what I thought and nobody really got it, but I didn't care. And now, you know, just more people did that. But thankfully it didn't drop off the boat kind of thing. I suppose like um, in the West, at least we've had quite a sort of, we've had, uh, we've moved from sort of one dominant homogenous culture to another over the past two and a half thousand years, whether it be the Romans or, uh, or right the way through to the British empire. And when you have such a dominant, uh, culture over it that holds so much power it's easy for that culture to uh, make certain practices taboo then isn't it whereas i guess indigenous populations and maybe populations more to the east there is more sort of uh there's, there's less there was less statism less hom- homogeneity and that means that these sort of uh the lessons, the, the the wisdom that's been transmitted through through generations can be maintained easier, whereas it would be outlawed, you know, in, in certain times in the West. Yeah, I mean, you, you do have in a lot of, you know, even France and Italy and a lot of Eastern European countries still traditions of mushroom foraging, and it is a big part of uh, family traditions there, just go out to the woods. Maybe, they, maybe the family only knows one or two species, and it's the one that they learned from their grandparents, and it's... Right really niche to the local cuisine, but there is that tradition of going out and picking mushrooms and it's not as unfamiliar as maybe many people in the United Kingdom or many people in the United States and North America. Um, just the act of doing that, even if you only know one or two. Um, I so definitely, it, I definitely know, get that vibe that it's, it's seen as dangerous in this country. Well, yeah, that's what I was going to say is like um, mushrooms kind of growing up as a child, you're kind of told to stay away from them in case you get one that makes you ill, basically. And like you just said, you know, um, there's, well, to be fair, there's like, at the moment, there's giant, there's giant posters near where I live about um, uh, giant hogweed um, and things yeah. like that, you know, that can have a similar kind of reaction, I guess, to certain types of mushrooms and stuff. Um, so it is that kind of messaging, I suppose, isn't it, in the different... And the other context, it's, it's used viewed within this country is psychedelics, isn't it? Yeah, unfortunately, yeah. Um, and I think that's kind of viewed inappropriately from the kind of stuff that I've been looking at recently. Definitely, anyway. Well, it's, I think it's still a Class A drug, isn't it, in the UK? Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's on a par with uh, heroin. What else? MDMA? Yeah, cocaine. Yeah, if I it's think. cocaine. Dr- dried and prepared, it becomes Class A. I think if it's... Um, it's so weird that something that just springs up from the ground... Mm. Is, is, is perfectly legal until you pick it and then dry it and all of a sudden, I mean, I don't know what the uh, the punishment would be for possession of a Class A drug, but mm-hmm. it's quite bizarre, isn't it, how yeah. something so natural can be um, terribly illegal. Yeah, bit of a weird one, isn't it, really? I mean, when I was kind of, I think when I when I first messaged you, I said I'd, I'd read um, Entangled Life by Merlin uh, uh, Sheldrake, um, and what struck me when I was beginning to read that was, and you kind of talked about it a little bit, was how central um, fungi are and the, certainly sort of like mycelium networks and things like that to um, most kind of plant growth on the earth, to be honest with you, from kind of what I was reading. And I found that quite surprising because from my kind of perspective, I, I sort of, uh, well, certainly in this country at the moment, it's quite a big thing. And because I'm just going to say this because um, there's a giant ash tree in in my back garden or near to my back garden and there's something called ash dieback which is caused by a fungi as far as i'm aware and loads of trees are being cut down in the local area because of that 
But basically what I was getting at is that it always has it's always has this kind of negative connotation when you're talking about fungi rather than sort of all the good that it does in terms of these like symbiotic relationships it has with various plants. I thought that was quite amazing really and something I was completely unaware of. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a, a, great, a great point. And it's one of the things that, um, you know, depending on the context, I'll, I'll point out as well that if you learn anything about mycology in informal education, uh, very often, you know, I've met people who got a four-year degree in environmental sciences or environmental design or something, and they maybe got, no, no exaggeration, one day of, of fungi or maybe two or something. And it's just focusing on the pathogens and that's kind of all that fungi do. And that's mm-hmm. really a lot of the paradigm when they're, when they're thinking about environmental assessments and it just speaks to, you know, the, the, the slow pace with, at which science updates itself and which um, textbooks are updated. Often you have to wait for one generation of professor to be replaced by the next. Yeah. And there's a lag. There can be multi-decade lag of awareness. And that's, you know, one of the things where you have to be self-taught or look outside the box for lots of topics, um, but especially with mycology to get the most current information. Um, you know, in writing my book, it was... Uh, primarily self-taught and it was just reading lots of peer-reviewed papers because most of the stuff isn't translated for the lay person and it's just kind of having that devotion to it to translate it to the next person um, so they can benefit from what we're finding and because again the textbooks aren't really keeping up to pace and so that's what most people learn in you know almost any science um, you know if you get any 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 integration of mycology into it whether it's a human uh, social science a natural science a hard science um, it's very limited kind of across the board, no matter the topic and probably very often, if anything, looking at the negative impacts of fungi on economy, on health of animals, plants, and which ultimately kind of translates to economy, you know, and back to the money, um, rather than what we're always trying to shift towards now in, in the work that like Merlin's doing and other people is highlighting all the great benefits they do, which vastly outnumber these supposed negative drawbacks. And, in many ways, what you're describing and, and some of these ecological impacts of these pathogenic fungi, I think can, depending on the context, um, you know, can really often readily be reframed as a lesson into the health of the environment. It's not really the fungus causing the problem. The fungus is actually providing a service to clear out, you know, an unhealthy space. So maybe all these trees, the soil has just been depleted for so long, the trees are just stressed and they can no longer survive. And so the fungus comes in and does what it does to reset the cycle and create a new wave of succession. We see this in the forest where one of the most uh, virulent and sort of aggressive and well-known, well-studied uh, mushrooms that attacks uh, many types of trees called the honey mushroom. It um, has been studied for hundreds of years. It'll attack old orchards and they've tried everything for so long to figure out how to kill off uh, honey mushrooms and it just can't. It's so strong. And But in the forest, you don't see, it's, it's kind of everywhere um, in many places, but it's not like causing a tidal wave of death of every tree it selectively thins and it picks off the ones that maybe got struck by lightning or are diseased from some other reason. Wow. It's, it's cr- cultivating and crafting the environment and opening up canopy, um, creating hollow snags <laughs> and, and, and habitat for animals. Um, and again, sort of turning over the tree to create a mother tree that the new generation can come out of. And this is a lot of this is guided by these, these aggressive fungi. I like to call them, you know, for lack of a better name, I, I try to coin from my book of the vocal fungi, like they're, they're yelling at us. They're telling us something about the environment and speaking really clearly, whereas a lot of the other fungi are more subtle and we don't see them and they're doing great work um, sort of behind the scenes. These ones are a lot more prevalent or present um, in showing us something, you know, there's a lesson to learn. I think I, I hypothesize, and there's some, some records of this with uh, Native Americans and First Nations, 
that they actually learned how to sculpt and maintain their their habitats and landscapes um, through observing the the actions of of mushrooms in the wild and where they grew and how they just how they how the mushrooms disturb the environment and then they would try to recreate that as wow. a lesson and I think it's something we can try to adopt. Do you think um, <clears throat> do you think this is a result of us relying so heavily on monocultures and that that's why uh, these certain mushrooms can go pathogenic because we we don't you know. <laughs> We're we're farming with the with 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 the almighty dollar in view rather than sort of uh, from a holistic approach. Yeah, I mean, when you look at a natural environment, a natural habitat, there's diversity, right? And it's not just diversity of plants, but diversity of microorganisms, diversity of fungi, diversity of fungi in the soil, which are incredibly important. It's a you know, topic we can go into, but those fungi, you know, in short, they move the nutrients around. Um, they put the nutrients where they need to be. They feed the plants properly in, in some sense. And they also transform the nutrients and, and do a lot of amazing chemistry. And then even inside of the plants, living throughout the entire tissue of all plants, we believe are, you know, a given tree could have a trillion different fungi living inside of it. And those fungi are shared between plants uh, through the wind. Spores are released or insects might bite a leaf fly over to another plant, bite that leaf and kind of transmit a fungus. And then that fungus enters the plant, provides benefit there, we're finding. Um, and so there's there's exchange, horizontal exchange of all these beneficial internal fungi, likely adding to the resilience of, of plants, helping them maybe push evolution, if you will, or something like this, adaptation rather. Um, and maybe this is why I say like a tree that's otherwise very healthy has one really nasty branch. Maybe that one branch just didn't get a right blend of fungi or something is a, is a, is a concept. So when you have monoculture, you deplete the soil, destroy all these soil organisms, all the organisms, the whole soil food web. You rip up all the mycelial networks. The plant can't feed itself because it depends on these organisms to be fed. That's how they've evolved. So you have to pour chemicals, pour nutrients, feed them, cater to them. A lot of those nutrients are wasted and toxic or poison the soil, salted up. And at the same time, you're not even getting these this exchange, this sort of a genetic updating, if you will, and adaptation that's provided through the movement of these internal fungi. Um, and so that's, and that's just, you know, one way to look at it as well. And you, and you don't have the right stressors where in a, in a habitat, you know, you never walk into the same forest twice because there's always change. There's always something dying and something new growing. And if you're just pushing the same thing over and over again, I mean, it's just, of course, completely unnatural. Um, and this is why I think these fungi, they, when things are just not working, they hit a sort of peak breaking point. They come in and do this job. They, be, they become the root rot. They attack the old orchard that was fine for 100 years, and now finally after 150 years, the, the apples are just too weak. Apple trees are too weak, and so the, the honey mushroom takes over, and they just don't. And the orchardists don't understand why, because it's been fine for 150 years. But maybe the soil has, you know, something's changed there. Who knows? You know, it's lots of lots of variables, and so, um, you know, a big part of holistic agriculture and and going um, away from monoculture systems is just thinking about diversity not just of plant species but also of soil organisms and i think these fungi as well yeah, the relationship between the fungi and the tree it kind of sounds similar to me to the re- the relationship with between a human and the bacteria that yeah. form a lot of us up that are on our skin our gut biome yeah and you know you, you, you there's a huge push for probiotics hasn't there hasn't there been over the last few years so you want to keep the your bacteria healthy because Oh, there's all sorts of weird science going on about what the gut bacteria can do for you or Linked not. to depression and anxiety yeah. as well. Yeah, so. exactly. And it sounds similar to what's happening with the fungi in the tree. Mm, definitely. Similar yeah. sort of relationship. Mm. Um, well, I was going to ask you, you mentioned spores before. 
Um, I, I'm, I don't know anything about any of this stuff, but do do fungi use the same sort of mechanisms as trees and plants, like insect pollination or wind pollination, or is it do they use different mechanisms? Uh, well, yeah, so spore dispersal um, takes a few different forms depending on the species. So say mushrooms, a lot of them that have formed above ground, they, they drop their spores, kind of it drifts off um, microscopic structures, hits the wind, maybe travels a foot or two, maybe catches a breeze and travels around the world. Um, maybe it catches on some fur or feathers and travels that way. Uh, but most spores don't go very far from the parent mushroom uh, for those types of species. You have a below ground uh, truffles and other underground fungi that rely on insects and animals and small mammals to eat them and then pass their spores and move them that way. Um, you know, you have like molds that, you know, are familiar to us and they, you know, you just touch a mold and then the spores dust off like that. So it's not as an active um, ejection. Maybe it's waiting for more to be sort of tapped. You have mushrooms that sort of have similar functions. They, some of them need to have like a raindrop enter them and it's sort of the, the force of that raindrop pushes out the spores. Um <laughs> Wild. Yeah, so there's, there's there's some pretty interesting mechanisms in that way. Um, and yeah, fungal reproduction strategies, fungal sex is incredibly complex. So it's not, you know, with animals, it's pretty similar across the board, you know, generally speaking. Um, obviously with some variants, but across the board <laughs> with mammals, with mammals, you know, there's like the two sexes and it's more or less works the same. Uh, with fungi, there's an incredible amount of diversity in how they reproduce, not only spread their spores and, and release them, but even how the spores are created. And um, yeah, it's, it's a, another massive area of study. Mostly we've looked at the cultivated mushrooms and like the portobellos and things because their impact on economy. And so we really want to understand every detail there, but it, with 2 million species and only about 2% named, there's, there's a lot we don't know. You're telling me mushrooms have sex. They do. Yeah. How, sort how, of. <laughs> how, how does that exchange. work? Yeah. Genetic exchange. Explain. Yeah. Pretend well, that I'm I mean, an idiot. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, it's kind of like how, you know, pollen goes from one plant, enters the ovary of the other plant. And so is that, that's called plant sex, I guess. You know, it's like genetic <laughs> exchange. Um, but there's not genitalia exactly. Oh. So with spores, with fungi, there's not, there's not genitalia. With the, the, the common example, the easy one um, is looking at just your average mushroom, like your portobello or shiitake. And all these spores are released. Um the, there are two chromosomes that are needed to um, signal that they're genetically able to, to mate. And when the spores uh, land, they'll germinate, they'll start to grow their own little mycelial network, and they're looking for a genetic partner. And they find that partner by releasing and scenting for pheromones that are very similar to the pheromones we use as animals to find a mate. Wow. And so it's a, it's, a, it's a chemical signaling, and when they find the right one, they will fuse their their uh, mycelium together and become to the two networks become one, and then there's genetic exchange that goes on there. Um, unlike animals, you know, humans where the sperm enters the egg and the two nuclei become one almost instantly. Um, with like mushrooms, the two mycelium fuse together, but you'll have two nuclei pretty much indefinitely for the for the vast majority of the life of the mushroom. So it sort of has like two brains is the way to think about, it, which is very different than other. It's one of the ways it distinguishes some fungi from others is this uh, extended two nuclear stage. Um, right. Yeah, but there's no genitalia. It's all, no, it's no. all chemical, chemical based. Can, yeah. can different species of fungi interbreed? So that's where it gets kind of interesting when you get into the more nitty gritty with it. So just like with animals, I mean, that's how we define a species is they're not able, you know, that's one of the definitions. Biolog the 
definition of a biological species is a little bit loose or there's different definitions. One of them being that, you know, it can breed with other ones like itself. And then if it can't breed and produce a viable offspring, it's, it's a different species with fungi. That's that more or less holds true. Um, there is one category of fungi that I find the most fascinating. They're called um, the glomeromycota. There's about 300 of them that we've named. They don't produce mushrooms. They live in the soil. They're super ancient. Um, they form root associations with about 90 plus percent of plants in the world do a lot of the, there's arguably the most ecologically significant for all this stuff they do in the soil. And really if anything came from outer space or if anything is weird about fungi, it's this group because among many things um, they can do what you just suggested two different supposed species can fuse together uh, for a short time, share a bunch of genetics and then break apart. Uh, Beyond that, what's really interesting is that they not only have one type of nucleus, which you and I and almost every other, you know, plant and animal only has one type of nucleus, one genetic, you know, sequence, if you will. These things can have anywhere from 800 to 35,000 genetically distinct nuclei in their body. So they're kind of like a, a genetic database of the soil and they've accumulated it likely throughout history. And when they fuse together, they're somehow sharing that. It's a lot we don't understand. It's totally bizarre. And it's argued it's been argued that they, this is so unlike all other life and fungi or otherwise that this category of, of what we call fungi should actually be its own completely separate group on the whole tree of life because of this genetic craziness. Um, so they're super cool, super weird and and really fascinating and really important for the soil. Peter, am I right in thinking that, um, some of these mycelium underneath the the soil or wherever can can be absolutely massive and, and you have one group of mushrooms that might pop up somewhere and then another group of similar mushrooms might pop up miles and miles and miles away. And technically it's the same, the same organism that's producing those. Exactly. Yeah. We have the largest living organism in the world is in the state where I live, Oregon, just a few hours away. And it's a massive mycelial network of the honey mushroom. This, this, this sort of pathogenic one I was discussing, it's in the, one of our state forests and they've mapped it genetically. And it's, it's a huge area. It's roughly, forget how many acres or hectares but it's kind of roughly 25 i think it's about 2500 acres if i remember correctly and it's anywhere we don't even quite know 2000 and 9000 years old it's kind of hard to age um mycelium mycelium can grow indefinitely given enough space and resources it has no limit on time and space um so pretty cool in that way i guess wow so um, that so did that start off as one individual and then over 2000 or 9000 two years, spores and then it's two expanded spores. and it's at either end of this network, it's genetically the same? Yep. yep. Fucking hell. <laughs> it's wild, isn't it? Yeah. It's super wild, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> why so I'm into it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One of the questions I was going to ask you was um, if you think that they are native to planet Earth. Oh, panspermia. Mm. Well, yes. I mean, you know, there's, um, I talk about this in my book a bit. I got pretty geeked on fungal evolution and just looking at the origins of life as a part of all that. And there's a lot of stuff we don't talk about in evolutionary theory as it relates to fungi. And so this was a a big curious question for me that I found a lot of um, hypotheticals I throw out there. One of them is, you know, the big question is where did life come from? The eternal debate about the um, spontaneous, you know, creation of a cell um, is somewhat still debated, you know, and it's the, the odds they say are genetically, you know, genetic odds of that happening are so beyond probability. So then there's this argument, well, then maybe life was seeded. Um, but then you have this sort of circular argument, where did that seed of life come from? <laughs> yeah. came on my asteroid, where'd that come from? Um, so apart from like intelligent design or anything like that, we can, we can think that, okay, if we take the accepted theory that life spontaneously arose as bacteria and, um, 
move forward. We think that eventually the cells got larger, started to eat the old dead bacteria that were just piling up. And what I talk about in my book is that the first larger celled, more complex organism to do that was something like a fungus, if not what we now call a fungus. So fungi were the first complex celled organisms of earth. And we as animals and plants evolved from fungi. They're our oldest ancestors in that way. Did it come from outer space? Well, what's quite interesting is that they have studied what organisms can survive the uh, conditions of outer space. You know, on outside the uh, space stations and things like that, so they throw it on kinds of organisms, see what they survive, if they survive after two weeks in, in the vacuum, bring them back in. And many molds, fungi, spores, and especially lichens can survive outer space. And what's interesting about lichens is they are, they're a symbiotic community. They're like a micro greenhouse where the mycelium is about 95% of the structure and it provides a house for algae or cyanobacteria photosynthesizing cells, but also many viruses, many other fungi, bacteria, and even little microscopic um, organisms called water bears or tardigrades. And tardigrades are also, if you've ever heard of them, if you look them up, they're also one of the most alien things on the earth, but they're, they're <laughs> microscopic. And so the argument, and they can survive outer space. They've tested tardigrades, and they can totally shut down. They go into this crazy uh, uh, suspended animation seemingly for indefinite periods of time. So the, 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 the way I would like to think about it, it's not so much that a spore or a mushroom landed, but maybe a, a lichen, because it's like the seed of everything. It has plants, animals, fungi, viruses, bacteria, even little animals um, all inside. And, it's, and they not only can survive the conditions of outer space, but they've simulated asteroid impacts, and many lichens and fungi can survive simulated asteroid impacts. So, you know, who knows the, the whole notion of life being uh, brought to earth is called panspermia. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to call it pansporia, um, <laughs> a twist, but um, ultimately we'll never know, right? No, I guess we hint in there that the sort of um, evol- evolutionary science is, is, is doing a good job on sort of plants and trees and tracing things back and trying to sort of find the common ancestors for different things, whereas... We're sort of running a bit behind where it comes to mycology. It's sort of, again, like we said earlier on, it's sort of been put to one side for the time being. We don't really understand it, and we're waiting for technology to catch up, really, to be able to analyse these things better. Yeah, I mean, again, without going too deep into the evolutionary thing, you know, the way I look at it, if you, if you really line up the the accepted sort of theories and papers, and I provide lots of citations to to make these claims, is that, the way I see it, or what makes the most sense to me based on what other researchers have done, is bacteria started everything. They piled up for about a billion years, and then something evolved to start to eat those dead bacterial cells. That was probably a fungus or something like a fungus. The fungi traveled across the early rocky earth and eventually teamed up with um, plant cells, and those plant cells probably developed by a fungal cell eating a photosynthesizing bacterial cell just like the mitochondria in our cells was created in a similar way where a larger cell ate a bacteria and then we caught mitochondria, which creates right. our cellular energy. Yep. I think now that it was debated for a long time, but now they more or less accept that that's the same thing that happened with plants where a photosynthesizing cell became the chlorophyll generator in a plant cell. And so what was that thing that swallowed that thing? I think it was an early fungus or fun- something like it. So fungi sort of created plant cells, if you will. And then the some of the chemical structures changed over time, the cell walls, but they're actually very similar. If you want to get even more into the details of fungal cell walls and plant cell walls. And so plants start to evolve, algae and things. And then the earliest structured organisms of earth were lichens from about 600 million years ago. And they form on the shores. And just as today, we have many lichens covering rocks. And those early lichens were covering the rocky earth, which was all there was, and dissolving that rock with acids produced by the fungi. And then the 
plant matter decomposing, building up the first soils of Earth, and they travel across the entire lithosphere and pave the way for eventually more plant evolution. And just to sort of end this long topic, um, the earliest plants have fungi living inside them, and the first plants with roots have fungi on those roots uh, providing nutrients. So they've been there at every, every step of the way, you know, in my mind, kind of shaping, guiding evolution. Well, in the way that you describe sort of bacteria using fungi to evolve to the next step, in a weird sort of twist of fate, do you think that then a few billion years later, the early hominids used the fungi again to to help us evolve into Homo sapiens? I mean, the argument maybe you're referring to the notion of taking of early hominids taking psychoactive fungi and sort of uh, sparking growth in the brain. Um, I'm one of the the outliers thinking that that hypothesis doesn't hold a lot of water. Um, and I come at that kind of based on other people's research and argumentation that I think is a little bit more science rooted than the cool idea that that happened. Yeah. Um, we, we talk about it because the leap from, you know, our previous ancestor to Homo sapiens sapiens was so short, it sort of defies evolutionary theory. That's the whole thing about the missing, the missing link in the evolution chain is we can't really explain the short such an incredible change in our brain uh, skull shape and all kinds of physiological changes in a very short amount of time. And so they've tried to come up with lots of ideas around why that that is. And, you know, one of them is maybe the mushrooms did it. If not with that leap or that change, you know, one of the earlier shifts, I don't know. But regardless, um, you know, the, in as much as certainly fungi could have done all kinds of stuff to make humans think differently, it boils down to the simple fact that psilocybin, these, these, these compounds don't actually cause genetic changes, don't cause genetic mutations which is the underlying argument for evolution, true evolution and, and things. So, you know, then it's, you can try to be like, well, maybe it led to a cascade of chemical reactions and who knows, you know, but there's just no direct proof of that other than it's an interesting idea. There's also lots of other things around the, the origin of that idea that say the mushroom eating tribes or, or clans of hominids procreated more or even had better um, peripheral vision. That's actually been, both those theories have been fairly discredited. So it kind of, you know, again, there's not a lot that holds water. And even if you want to go down that route, you sort of have to take all these little arguments together for it to work. And a lot of them don't really hold up on their own. So, you know, it's one of the bubbles I often burst, or at least try to bring a (laughs) different, you know, counter argument to devil's advocate, try to look at the science a little bit clearer. Um, But it's not to say that these mushrooms don't do something, right? The psychoactive ones, if we're talking about those, um, to spark, to spark something and, you know, thinking creative, creative outlets and stuff. But yeah, more in general no, a, with uh, mushroom yeah. consumption. Um, I mean, I I hate mushrooms, right? <laughs> in terms of, it, uh, of eating them, is there anything you can say to convince me that there are benefits outside the uh, quote unquote delicious flavor and texture of mushrooms? <laughs> well, the first thing I would ask is how they're being cooked for you. In my experience, most places, restaurants, and things, the way they cook them, I don't like them. Uh, um, I think. I think it would have been a uh, part of a, an English breakfast in my very early development <laughs> that caused it. Probably really wet, revulsion. probably really wet and slimy, and yeah. um, probably just creminis or white buttons with very little flavor and not a lot of appeal. So I don't like portobellos. I don't like creminis. I don't really. I mean, they're okay, but I would never choose them really. Um, but even like oysters or something that are pretty common in the grocery stores here. I'm not sure about over there if you have a lot of diversity in your grocery stores with cultivated mushrooms. But um, even shiitake, you know, maybe that's even more accessible or something. Mm-hmm. For me, and a lot of people I've shown this to, you really got to cook them um, a lot to make them 
in my opinion, much more flavorful. And what that means in short is just dry saute them on a low medium heat, cook out a ton of water because they have a ton of water in them. Mm. And that concentrates the flavor. So it's not some watery and slippery and things, but, and also at the same time, if you don't like the, I don't like the slippery texture personally. So it makes it more sort of dense and chewy. So more like meat in a way. Um, and then once all that steam has come out and that can take a while, like there's a lot of water in most restaurants. I don't think they have the time to cook all that water out. Um, and then you add some oil or whatnot, and then actually kind of fry it maybe as crispy as you like salt, um, and whatever little flavoring. And really it's a, a game changer. You know, some people like well, tamari or some, something to uh, emphasize the umami. And right. it's really, it's, it's for me, it's a lot to get the water out and get the texture more dense. And yeah. it's a, it's a night, night day experience. Crispy might do it for me. I'm, I'm going to try that. Definitely. Uh, are there any sort of, um, speaking of the, the early man and, um, and the consumption of the mushrooms, were there any benefits to having mushrooms in the diet at that time? And how did they know? I guess it's a case of how do we know anything? We just pick it, we eat it, we pick it, we smoke it, whatever we, we <laughs> you know, we found out through trial and error over thousands and thousands of years, right? Oh, yeah, I mean, of course. And so, you know, and that, that's why we can argue that some traditional cultures, maybe early on, they figured out that some mushrooms are deadly and they just avoided all of them. You know, we, it's hard to say. And then different myths might have popped up around uh, around mushrooms in different cultures. Um, our oldest example, our oldest known proof of human consumption, intentional human consumption of mushrooms comes from almost 19,000 years ago when uh, from a cave in northwestern Spain where wow. a woman figure a woman figure who seems to have been probably a high member of society, a sort of a royalty class, elite class, was ceremonially buried in a cave um, as a part of a nomadic culture known as the Magdalenian culture. And she was yeah, buried with flowers and painted in this red uh, ochre paint. So she's called the Red Lady. And on her jaw, she had the spores of two different mushroom species. And we don't know the identification of the species, but I... I, I throw out there, you know, it could be anything, but what if it was our very famous red and white mushroom, which if we want to get into psychoactive mushrooms and culturally significant mushrooms, that is the mushroom that I could, you know, talk in to the end of days about because that one has a way more impact on cultural development, uh, mythology, art, and arguably even the world religions than say our more popular, you know, magic mushrooms of today that have psilocybin. Mm-hmm. The, the red and white mushroom we call the fly agaric. It has different active compounds, totally different experience, totally different mushroom. Um, and, but, you know, maybe she didn't eat that. She could have eaten anything, but what it speaks to is, you know, she was in a high class and they, she ate mushrooms. And so was it only for her class? Did she inherit that knowledge from a a culture, another 20,000 years prior to that? We don't know, but that's our oldest sort of proof. Um, and it's a theme you find in a lot of different cultures from, from the ancient um, Romans to the ancient Egyptians, um, to some parts of uh, ancient China, where mushrooms in certain species were only for the high class, only for the priests or the pharaohs or for the emperor, uh, because they were so revered, whether for their nutritional benefit, but arguably for their medicinal benefit and not necessarily psychoactive, but really the incredible health benefits that we now know they have. They figured out long ago, and some of those mushrooms were so rare that, you know, the only the emperor deserved those great medicinal benefits. Mushrooms are incredibly nutritious. Um, depending on the species, they might be very high in protein. Sometimes they have all the amino acids, essential amino acids. They might have a good amount of trace minerals, different vitamins, um, good flavor, all kinds of stuff. And they preserve well when you dry them. So any culture that figured that out and figured out at least a handful of species that were common and dependable and easy to identify, which there are many that are very easy to identify that are safe and good and kind of like the top of the list for beginners. Mm-hmm. If those And those pop up all over the temperate world. So, you know, if cultures figure that out, they do 
were likely adding to their uh, diet as they tasted and sampled everything else in the environment. Peter, does um, does ergot fall under the banner of, of lichen, fungi, mold sort of stuff? Well, it's, 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 so it's called a smut fungus. Um, and so it's, yeah, it's a funny name, but it's, it's actually a more highly evolved class. Um, even though it doesn't look as complex as say a mushroom, but it's, um, it, it's, it's sort of, it's in the same broad group as a lot of our more familiar mushrooms, even though it looks very different and it's, and it attacks plants in this way and certain grasses. Right. Um, Ergot is uh, definitely to be avoided for intentional consumption. It has a lot of compounds that can cause gangrene and, and leprosy and things like this. So we definitely don't want to mess with it. But also it's well known. And maybe you mentioned it because it was it has precursors and sort of compounds very similar to um, LSD in it. And so there's, yeah, lot of, I was, there's been a lot of research here. Well, I was asking because I was going to ask if you checked out Brian Mararescu's book, uh, The Immortality Key, that I think came out last year, the year before. I, don't know if you're well, I just picked it up. Actually, I haven't had a chance to look at it, but it was suggested to me. Yeah, yeah, it's it's very interesting down that line of uh, ergot being used in the ancient mystery schools and possibly during ceremonies and at the birth of Christianity and all this. This again, it's going back to these um, weird organisms being used in a sacred context, like they are in South America still today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't I can't speak to what he says there. I want to check oh. it out. You know. What I knew, what I had always heard, and I, I really am curious if he has, you know, updated information, but what I'd always heard, one of the arguments against the notion that ergot was used in the uh, mystery schools and practices um, of especially like ancient Greece, really famous, is that uh, we don't, we haven't figured out today a way to safely extract the compounds. And so, you know, even with modern chemistry, we can't figure out a way that they would have traditionally done it in a safe way where and not extract the, the really toxic stuff. So maybe he talks about that. I'm not sure. Um, yeah. There's but, a, uh, one of our yeah. previous guests, Dr. Eric Klein. Oh, Do you remember the uh, oh, yeah. archaeologist? He's working uh, on a dig called Tel Cabri in Israel and they found an ancient wine cellar and uh, Brian Marescu, uh What do you call it? When you were uh, shout someone out in your book. Name check. Give a shout out. Give a shout out, yeah. <laughs> to Eric Klein because um, basically they took some of these wine, I don't know if they call them amphories, amphorae jars, and sent it off for some sort of chemical testing and that's where they found traces of uh, psychedelics. And, mm. the, the you know, the theory is, is that it was sort of a, a brewed mixed wine, that, that it was wine spiked with ergot or potentially other compounds related related. Um, I th- I, you'll love it anyway. It's fascinating, but yeah, um, yeah. I mean, the, the LSA that's in ergot is in other plants as well. So, you know, I don't know. I mean, I'd love it to come from a fungus. That'd be cool. It's just as I, it's always a very cautionary tale about anybody wanting to experiment with ergot in their mm-hmm. you know home kitchen because it's just so dangerous. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, you know, there's there's you know different hypotheses around some of you know what the Kaikion was in the Eleusian mysteries of ancient Greece. This this mysterious brew that Socrates was killed because he shared the recipe about. Um, it was so so coveted. Um, some people think it was an ergot extraction. Some people think it could have been mushrooms or a blend of Syrian rue and all kinds of stuff. It's there's good speculation, but um, and we only can really point to some poems and things about Demeter to think that it's ergot. But again, it's it's a little bit of uh, conjecture and. Interesting conversation for, for sure, though. Yeah. What about yourself personally? Do you do you uh, use these things for psychonautic experiences, or, or are you more th- 
using it for sort of physical health or just through scientific perspective or, or what? Um, well, I'm high right now. No, I'm um, no, um, I mean, you know, I'm never shy to say that I've certainly taken psychoactive mushrooms in the past and it's changed my life and benefited me. Um, I always caveat that with, I've also known people who friends who've had really uh, detrimental experiences. So I always put a lot of caution around anybody just diving in, you know, prepared, um, despite the, the excitement that might surround it or something. Um, but yeah, I've done that. I don't do it super regularly. You know, it's a little bit of a private practice type of thing. Um, and then generally, yeah, I mean, I certainly take mushrooms. Um, I make my own medicinal extracts. I grow medicinal mushrooms. Actually, right behind this wall is part of my mushroom farm. <laughs> um, and so we do a lot of work there. And, um, yeah, I mean, I've taken a lot of them throughout my life. I, I mean, I kind of dabble in a lot of it, and then I try to teach a lot of it um, sort of as a part of that as I learn. And so anything from the foraging to the cultivating to the processing, um, et cetera. So. Yeah. Why don't you uh, tell us a bit about the website and the book? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I got into mycology as a teenager, as I said, and then it was just over, you know, 10, 15 years that I was just putting pieces together. I'd hear little tidbits. I'd read books here and there and learn new things. And it was also fascinating. And, you know, I try to convey these tidbits that were stimulating my mind to friends. And eventually, as I started to teach uh, through a series of, you know, events, and I started to get out in the world, share what I know. Um, you know, I'd share a lot and have some, maybe things I typed up or resources and point people to other people's books. There re- really wasn't a go-to, um, that condensed it all. And so a handful of years ago, a little over five years ago now, I finally, I published, um, sort of the book I always wanted growing up and it really touches the tips of many, many icebergs I've come across and, and a lot of the skills, a lot of the great ways to work with fungi, a lot of ways to appreciate all they do, um, touching on all these topics we've, we've gotten into much more and, just opening up hopefully the reader's eyes to this vast world of not just like the science of cultivation or fungal ecology, but all these things. I mean, I'm interested, like I say, in, in the cultural aspects, um, the questioning, why do we fear them? You know, thinking a little bit more deeply psychologically, um, all the applications, how to make the medicines, how do we build a house in the future out of mycelium? Maybe, you know, what's that look like? So it's a, it's a, it's kind of like a coffee table book, a lot of reference, a lot of how to interwoven with, short essays and connecting thoughts and personal perspectives and insights I've gleaned over the years, talking to lots of people and, you know, all the reasons it matters to me, not just this topical practical reasons, but the deeper meanings too, you know, why does it move me and what does it make me think about, you know, life and nature and what, you know, what I'm doing here and things like this as in as much as I want to go so deep in a text in a reference book. Um, and, you know, along the way of writing that and researching it for a couple of years, I learned a lot more than I was able to put into the book. And so now I've been translating all lot, all that extra knowledge into um, online courses. And so that's what Michael Logos is. So the book is Radical Mycology. And that comes out of my a uh, lot of work I did with many people over the years, kind of trying to build a sort of grassroots philosophy, if you will, a movement. We've done basically our big thing is big events every few years in the States called Radical Mycology Convergences, where we come together around the skills and the ideas and the excitement of, of a modern microculture, as we call it. And that's what that book is sort of revolving around is sort of this philosophy, this feeling, the sentiment that goes beyond the practical. And the school is meant to be sort of another expression of that, a little bit more of my personal, uh, the growth I've had since the book came out five years ago and the knowledge I've gained since then and the practical applications running my own farm and things for the cultivation parts. And yeah, we launched a couple of years ago, surprisingly, almost two years ago, the first classes came out, but then as I was starting to make some changes to was going to make some new ones and got some feedback from students last year, sort of through a big linchpin and everything. 
Um, but with the silver lining that it, the way it panned out, just taking a big pause and restructuring lots of stuff, improving my uh, warehouse space and a lot of the logistics and a lot of the, you know, camera stuff and just figuring out all the uh, things to make all the, the learning modules and what have you better online and ultimately in person once that's more uh, easy to do. So we're very soon, I've been saying this for any of my listeners will know, I've been saying for a very long time, we're going to have a new website very soon. And it's actually uh, every day closer and I'm pretty excited. It's just things take longer than, than you expect. Um, and that'll be once if people are new to my work or if you've followed before, just again, keeping an eye out for uh, whenever you catch this, that new stuff is coming on, on a couple different fronts, ways to get engaged, um, but especially new classes and a whole new presentation and just really ultimately it's a lot of going deeper and just going even more, uh, making it more personal of experience, both my personal experience and hopefully facilitating, you know, the viewer's personal experience and not just the how to, but you know, again, what does it all mean? And, and, and why is it exciting and why do we want to do this and share this? Um, so yeah, I'm quite proud of it and sort of the growth we've been having behind the scenes for the last few years. Um, even though we have quite a lot of students from around the world still joining all the time, there's, there's kind of a lot to come. Cool. What, what sort of things will you learn if you, if you go to the course? Is it sort of walking you through how to set up your own small grow operation, if you like, and then what to do to expand it, growing different types of mushrooms? Yeah, so right now, I mean, you know, right now we have three classes offered. And, you know, I'd say that if people want to jump right in, you can take them. But we're going to be offering new versions of them fairly soon. that will be sort of upgraded. So, um, and if you sign up now, you'll get the upgraded version too when that comes out. So however you want to look at that. But um, right now we have basically a total beginner. Like if you kind of just know nothing, you know, you maybe just watch a documentary, you got excited, you just want to wrap your head around it. It's for the total beginner. And each week there's just like a super, you know, a couple skills. For me, it's, it's like the most basic stuff. But for a lot of people, it's, 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 all, it's all totally new. So um, just trying to put that out there and get people excited about all these different aspects. Um, so I call that one of the mini ways of fungi and just trying to show you how big this world is. And then, uh, there's a one that just goes really deep into mushroom identification and, um, really the first few weeks, we don't even talk about mushrooms. It's really about the foundational, how, and how do you wrap your head around this? How do you do it safely? The tools, the language, um, rather, you know, you can't just rush out there and try to identify some, you can figure that out easily on YouTube. What I try to show you is the underlying structure that'll serve you for a lifetime, and really, it's like a systematic approach I've developed to being efficient, but also, you know, just, you know, using your time efficiently and really understanding the mushrooms and going as deep as you want. And then we spend the, you know, the, the second two thirds of the course just going through lots of species, over 70 species and broad groups. And most of them apply to the vast majority of the, the world. Um, I try to keep it as, as global as I can um, mm -hmm. while enabling you to no matter where you travel, pick up a local field guide and, and be able to navigate it. Um, so that one's just mushroom fo focus, identification focused. And then the third one is our more intermediate one, which is really kind of technical, much more sciencey, and that's more about fungal ecology. And so that one's just like hard and fast and deep with the peer reviewed and so soil science and all these nitty gritty of all the fun, what fungi are doing, what and where. And so I try to keep it fun and light, but it's just a lot of info. Um, you know, you have a, a year to work through it. Um, but if you want that hard science that you're not going to get in university, um, it's something I'm quite proud of. And I, and I know really isn't available in most places around the world. Um, and if you're interested in the environment, uh, you know, anything based on the environment, permaculture, landscaping, just anything about soil, plants, um, I would like to think you'll, you'll get quite a good bit of insight. And there are some skills that come along with it. It's not just, you know, information, but I try to give you something, something to do with it, some applications. So that's just a starting place. And then um, it all started. We did a, I did a Kickstarter a few years ago, and that's what helped kick this off. 
And if you look at the Kickstarter, you'll see a number of other courses that are sort of promised and in the wings. Um, those will more or less come out how they were promised. There'll be some little restructuring as I've learned more and thought about this a lot more. Um, but there's a lot more, you know, I kind of also want to get to new ideas, new courses, large and small, short and short and long. Um, so, but we'll be rolling them out sort of, you know, one at a time and pacing them um, and just giving people a, a good chance to, to, to dive in where they want and at, at whatever pace feels good. Just going back to um, the, the sort of dietary stuff with, mm-hmm. with the mushrooms. I mean, are they, are they, do they have protein in them? Is it fiber? Is it carbohydrates? You, me- you mentioned that they had lots of nutrients and, and stuff in them. But I mean, what's like, I'm trying to figure out if you could survive just off mushrooms. <laughs> well, you, you know, you never want to, you can't really survive off just one thing. Maybe some people say meat, but that might be controversial for certain <laughs> listeners. Jordan um, Peterson. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. But um, as far as mushrooms go, you know, some species are complete proteins. They have all the essential amino acids. They might not have it in a good ratio, but some have been shown to have all the essential amino acids. Um, Mushrooms, like a lot of plants, they accumulate minerals out of what they're growing out of. So depending on what the mushroom is growing out of, it might pull up trace minerals. Some are better at pulling up certain ones than others. So they can be, you know, high in selenium or something like this. Um, Some of them do produce vitamins. They don't really produce as much vitamin B, but some even produce vitamin C, K, Um, They're most known or sort of regarded for a a unique compound. It's one of the things that's unique to fungi in their cell wall. They have a compound that's similar to cholesterol. It's called ergosterol. And when ultraviolet light hits that, it converts into vitamin D2. So you can take fresh or dried mushrooms, put them in the sun for a few hours, and pretty dramatically increase their vitamin D content, which (laughs) most anybody in the northern hemisphere could use. Absolutely. Um, So that's that's a nice perk. Um, But really with mushrooms in general, you know, fresh or dried, for most people, even if you don't have a sensitive stomach, it's just good not to binge or eat too much at one go. Um, it just often can, you know, depending on your stomach, but that's always a caution. And, 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 if, and even if it's a gourmet mushroom, you know, if you've never had it before, you might only eat a little bit because I've known people that I know one student one time told me he gets headaches or migraines from shiitake. And so, you know, people are, everybody's different. Yeah. Um, but that's not to say that's, you know, common, um, but you just always want to be sensitive. You're aware of food sensitivities, especially if you are, are, are already um, food sensitive, but um, yeah, I mean, some mushrooms by dry weight have like thirty percent protein, you know, which is pretty significant. Absolutely. One of the not, ones not that so keeps what, um, sorry, one of the ones that keeps getting brought up is it Lion's Bane or Lion's Main? Lion's Main. Lion's Main. Yeah. Is that is that one that has some sort of superior chemical makeup or something? Bit of a superfood. Yeah. Chapter. Yeah, exactly. So it's, I mean, it's a pretty good uh, nutritious mushroom. The bit of the wonderful thing about apart from portobello's and button mushrooms is if it's a, if it's a gourmet edible, highly cultivated, it's also going to have some degree of, of health benefit. Um, so even like shiitake has, has been heavily studied and it's a great um, immune support and it does many other things for the body. Lion's mane is um, fairly easy to cultivate and tastes pretty good. A lot of people says it tastes like crustacean or maybe like crab meat and texture and, and flavor. Um, but it uniquely has compounds that have been argued to be nature's best defense against uh, neurological degeneration and potentially helping with de- various forms of dementia and to some degree sort of neurological damage repair. So these compounds are called hericinones and aranacines. And what they do in the body is stimulate our body's production of a compound nerve growth factor. So it kickstarts our bodies, makes our body you know, a little bit better, at producing this compound that helps with nervous system uh, healing. And so um, there's been quite a bit of studies showing that it can help with the regeneration of the insulation around our neurons, the, the myelin. 
um, and even clearing up plaques associated with dementia in the brain. And so lots, lots of research going into trying to synthesize these compounds, of course. Um, but if you or somebody yeah, you, you know... you can't has, patent a mushroom, can you? Yeah. <laughs> you need to uh, just change a little molecule there, slap the Pfizer badge on it, and then you quids in. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that one's gaining, gaining huge traction because it's, you know, like reishi is, a, is one of the most famous medicinal mushrooms, but it's really bitter. It's woody. You can't eat it for dinner. You make a really bitter tea or some other extract, put it with coffee, um, you know, but it's not as like delicious. Whereas lion's mane is quite good if you cook it right. Uh, and, you know, it has all these health benefits too. What's the best way of preparing it to uh, get the most out of those benefits, Peter, would you say? Well, you know, again, um, i just trying to get the water out. One technique I saw, because a lot of times when you get at the store, sometimes they come in big kind of, they're, they're sort of like pom-poms is another nickname. It's called pom-pom mushroom. So it's like a big icicle ball with little, uh, we call them hairs or teeth. And um, sometimes they, they're quite large at the store, often kind of small, kind of like a, a rock, you a palm-sized rock. And, but that's a lot of water, you know, it can be upwards of 90% water in some mushrooms. And so you want to get that out and an easy way to do that. If you don't want to slice it, if you want to kind of keep the whole thing, there's different recipes, of course, but a neat, really easy one is just put on a griddle. And as the water starts to steam out, either use like a really strong spoon or just like another griddle and just straight smash it down and push it down and you rupture the cells, you get all that water out and you kind of just make it a dense patty. um, And then just kind of flip it and grill it till it's crispy and brown and hopefully got most of the water out some if you eat butter throw some butter on there whatever your oil and seasoning is and um you know blame probecho (laughs) excellent Mm. yeah sounds delicious are they pretty accessible here in the uk lion's bane can you get them at supermarket lion's i keep saying like why do i keep saying lion's bane well i've got like um, next to no knowledge about mushrooms but i remember one of our friends had a huge you mentioned it being quite big is it what color is it is it white not? It's, it's yeah white or off-white yeah yeah so i think um one of our friends oh, might have yeah. had one and yeah, grown it himself photo on, didn't he? yeah, yeah himself yeah but i mean if, if you're not starting your own mycological mycelium network can you uh, can you get them at supermarket well this is the thing isn't it i think one thing about accessibility is that it's like when i go to the supermarket all i see are button mushrooms and portobello mushrooms um, can't get anything I, since I, brexit right? well yeah there's that as well but yeah there's um there's not a lot of variety out there in terms of what you can get. And I think that's where your kind of, the other thing that kind of struck me was that kind of open source thing that you have a little bit around like the, the radical mycology and things like that, that you can go and read that information for yourself and uh, get it. So you can actually start growing it yourself really at the end of the day. Um, Cause you know, yeah, if you, I mean, yeah, if you're not going to be catered for, um, you might as well do it yourself. Yeah, I mean that's that's one of the really the big points I made in my book that I've um, that you know in my reality my sort of biased world of mycology it's it's everybody knows it kind of thing but of course the newcomer isn't aware that mushroom growing is just incredibly it's you know it's on par with making good beer um, or good wine in your kitchen it's a it's a fermentation hobby ultimately it's a microorganism eating foods you feed it turning into something else. And just like with other fermentation hobbies, you need to prepare the ingredients, get the right ingredients, prepare, the, clean some things up, make it nice and tidy, um, and then just follow the steps and, you know, try not to make a mistake. And you will make mistakes. You'll have some batches go bad and you learn and then you just get better. And there are techniques nowadays that you really can do it in the kitchen and you can do it without a big lab and all sterile, which is what I learned when I was a kid. It had to be all just crazy sterile. The book said that and it was so intimidating, but that's what like intrigued me was the challenge. Uh, most people don't have the time or energy to face those kinds of like logistical and you know infrastructural challenges in their apartment. 
So a huge breakthrough in the last 10 years, um, you know, it was a game changer for me when it really hit the scene, if you will, a bunch of years ago. And now it's kind of very familiar for lots of, lots of folks into it is, is techniques that get rid of all of the fancy lab equipment. And you can have quite a lot of success growing lion's mane and many others just in your kitchen, very low tech, but high yield. Um, you know, I'm not sure resources in the UK. One of the biggest challenges with say like lion's mane uh, for the listener is like, you know, you need to source wood, um, and a lot of people like in the Midwest of the U S where there's not a lot of trees, they use wood pellets. They use like burning stoves. So that's just like, that's one logistical challenge is finding the ingredients. Sometimes it's not as common as like soil that you grow to, you get at a plant nursery. Mushrooms need different stuff. Um, but there are other species that are very easy to grow. Oysters are a great starter for most people. They can grow on coffee grounds. They can grow um, on a lot of like agricultural waste, all kinds of stuff. Wheat straw is really common in the U S but coffee grounds. I mean, anybody can do that in their kitchen and get mushrooms out of it. Um, with very low cost, very low input and, you know, some risk, you might get a mold batch and then you just kind of get over it and try again and you get better at it. Um, and that's a lot of, that was one of the underlying ethos with the radical mycology thing is decentralizing and empowering anybody to take on this thing that we, we were, you know, I grew up kind of learning vaguely that it's impossible to do. And so it's empowering to do, to learn something that you were told you couldn't, um, let alone all the benefits you get for yourself, your food, your family, may maybe make a living out of it as well, of course. Is it possible to cultivate outdoors? You know, um, if you have like a little herb garden where you've got little patches set aside for growing different herbs, is there like a hardy uh, mushroom you can grow outdoors? Yeah, and so, I mean, this is one of the easiest inroads for people that just kind of, you know, don't know where to start, don't know how to start. Um, The go-to outdoor mushroom is what we call the garden giant or the king strafaria or queen strafaria. um, And the wine cap, burgundy cap has lots of names because it's been grown for so long. It's really kind of came from Eastern European uh, cultures and people figuring out it grew well in the garden and like in the base of the corn where it's shady and moist. Um, but this mushroom, it grows on all kinds of stuff. It does it like a lot of mushrooms, not all of them, but a lot of them do prefer wood. You might think of like horse manure. That's more for portobellos. Um, a lot of the mushrooms we actually like prefer wood and this one prefers wood. It does quite well on that, but it can also grow on kind of composting materials. It's really uh, flexible and which is makes it really nice it can tolerate direct sun exposure it can tra- tolerate drought most mushrooms can't and and it and you kind of just throw it in the garden you, you what you'll need to do is for listeners find a local provider whether in the uk or somewhere else in you know your part of the world get it imported uh, garden giants spawn sada spawn and you'll talk to them figure out what they offer follow the instructions mix it with some stuff in the in the garden just follow the instructions lots of videos on youtube about this and if all goes well it'll establish and in, you know, three to six months, you'll get a patch of, you know, dinner plate size mushrooms that taste <laughs> fairly good. Wow. They're kind of, you know, they kind of hit people's palate a little bit differently. I kind of think of them as sort of like the potato of the mushrooms. They don't have like a strong flavor. They're like a flavor carrier, but you get a bunch of them and they get huge if you want. And they just kind of, and they'll run all over the garden too. You plant it here and then actually next year it shows up all the way over there. And you just gotta, you just gotta keep feeding it. Um, give it new food every season. Try to keep it moist if you can. Yeah. But it's a great one to start with. Yeah. Are, are these um, are these uh, mushrooms safe for dogs and cats as well? Yeah, um, you know, as far as I know, you know the the only poisonings that we report in the U.S. are usually poisonous species that are also poisonous for humans. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I'm not. Yeah. So like this one, as far as I know, is safe for animals. If they ate the garden giant, you know, dog would be fine. Yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty but, sure. Dog eat anything, wouldn't it? So. Yeah, my dog will eat anything. Yeah, <laughs> just eat, you know, I don't want it getting diarrhea or something. No. It's a nightmare. 
Uh, you mentioned you got the new website coming up. Is there anything, any other new developments coming up on the horizon? Things that you're planning? More books? Yeah, so so another, um, well, a couple of things. Yeah, thank you. So um, this big event I mentioned, the Radical Mycology Convergence, we have been doing historically every other year. It got postponed last year, and we decided to postpone it again this year because of um, just how Oregon's handling COVID, and it just kind of seemed it wouldn't be right. We'd like to have a big gathering, and so that'll probably have to be postponed until next year. In lieu of that, we started last year, me and the people I work with, and are doing again this year, um, the Fungi Film Fest. So it's the world's first film festival dedicated to fungi. Last year, it was only 10 minutes and less films, um, and it was great. We had over three hours, three hours of incredible content from around the world. And this year, we've extended it to all durations, and so we're still taking submissions for the next few days. I don't know when this episode will come out, but that's about to close. But then folks can go to FungiFilmFest.com, get tickets uh, soon. They're not available just quite yet, but um, that's great. And then we'll be streaming the, the program in November online, and that'll be probably pretty fun. A lot of the submissions so far have been pretty amazing, so we're excited again about that. Um, it's just a way to kind of build community culture, push the uh, yeah, cultural development of, of the mycoculture, as we call it, forward which is what the convergence is meant to do in its own way. But this is a sort of more globally accessible and in a different form of creative expression. Um, I do have a new book coming out through a company called microcosm publishing next year, early next year called the microcultural revolution um, that we haven't been publicizing that it's just kind of hit their website. You know, if you look for it, but that'll be happening. It's a much more introductory book to a lot of what's in my big book, radical mycology. So if you just want something super beginner, that's a, that'll be a good starting place. And yeah, and then the, um, like I said, the new courses are coming, you know, as with anything you can follow on social media, we have an email list, that type of thing to just stay up to date. And really once everything's a little bit more lined up, there's kind of last moving parts to get into place. Um, we'll sort of be pulling the trigger and, and trying to move, you know, as quick as possible through all these, these big new uh, changes. Cool. Exciting mm-hmm. times ahead. Yeah. I'll, yeah. Uh, yeah. We've come on. Were you going to say something about No, this is enjoying you. Okay. No, I was just going to say, we've gone over an hour already. I'm going to have to let Peter go. So, uh, yeah, the website's there. If you're watching on YouTube, michaellogos.world, no WWs. And the links will all be in the description anyway for uh, your website. And uh, sign up to the newsletter and keep up to date. Mm. And yeah. uh, it's Last been, thing I'll say... Yeah, go on. Oh, well, oh, just one thing I'll say about my book that can kind of be confused for some folks is... Um, it is available through Amazon, but we charge a bit more because of the fees and stuff. So if people in your part of the world want to get a copy, go to the publishing website. Um, it's C H T H A E U S.com. It's a made up word. Theus is how you pronounce it. But anyway, there you'll see, uh, like UK shipping and European shipping and the total will definitely be cheaper than if you got to say through Amazon or other local retailers, it's kind of the best route there, but there are some UK distributors now we're working with and things as well. Excellent. Sounds mm-hmm. cool. Well, thanks for your time, Peter. It's been uh, fascinating learning about mushrooms. I've really yeah, enjoyed this great. one. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Yeah, and uh, don't forget to check all the links out in the, eavesdrop- in the uh, show notes. Um, should we go? I think we should. Yeah, thanks very much, Peter. <laughs> Stay on the line yeah, for us. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah, it's great to meet you. Stay on the line for us for a minute while we play ourselves out, and uh, we'll catch you a lot on the flip side. Peace. Tighten my noise gate. That's what she said. Right, then we're back. The dwarf, the cripple, and the mother of madness. That was our chat with Peter McCoy from michaellogos.world. Mm. Mushrooms. 
I could. Uh, I think there was. We could have spoken to Peter for a bit longer, actually. But you so. know, we have to um, limit you. Can't yeah. too much of a good thing. No, exactly. Yeah. No, you, we leave you wanting more, so you'll go and visit. Um, yeah, the websites, etc. Yeah, check out the links in the show notes. There's tons of information there, and uh, the the new revamped website is uh, gonna sound. It sounds cool. Yeah, yeah. imminent, edgy, and uh, sign up to the newsletter. I'm gonna get the newsletter. Keep on top of. Uh, I'm interested in that film film uh, yeah. festival. Whenever that happens, November, I think he said it was. Mm. That'd be quite good. Yeah, definitely. Right. I wanted to talk to him about athlete's foot, but we didn't get a chance. <laughs> athlete's foot. That's a fungus. Yeah, Ben's riddled with it. (laughs) Is it normal to have it everywhere? (laughs) Is it normal to have athlete's nose? (laughs) I didn't think you were going to go for nose there. No, I know, yeah. Athlete's balls. (laughs) Right, let's move on. Housekeeping. Housekeeping. This is a value for value podcast. It is. If you find some value in this podcast, please return some value, something like that. Along those lines. Yeah. Yes, lots of ways of doing that. Myriad ways, you might say. Yeah. Yeah. uh, Can we think of any good ones? Well, I always start with um, please send us some artwork. I like to see the artwork personally. It's good. Yeah. Yeah. How how many pixels, Ben? Is it 1400 square? Minimum. Oh, up to shit. Uh, three thousand. Three thousand oh, pixels. Yes. In yeah. The zone. Yeah, yeah. If you've got some artwork, you want it to be uh, the uh, the iTunes artwork or the Spotify artwork. We can do. We can accommodate that as long as it's square <laughs> and it's within that range of pixels. Mm. Yeah, it's hot it's stuff. It's hot shit. Draw yeah. some mushroom. Yeah, if you wish. That'd be nice. That'd be a good one, wouldn't it? No, uh, no agenda. Have a dedicated website where you can go and draw your own art and then upload it straight to them, oh. and then they pick the winner for the episode. No agenda. Have a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Million listeners for a start. Well, yeah. When we get a million listeners, we might pull our <laughs> finger out and make a website. Yeah, yeah. Um, word of mouth. Yeah. Tell people. Yeah, it's the best form of advertising. Yeah. Spore. Spore advertising. Yeah. Yeah, spread your info. Everyone teach 12. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> That's what the noble said, wasn't it, from CFR Network? Um, there is a famous saying along that lines, like teaching 12. I've no something idea. to do with disciples. Yeah, I thought it was Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, uh, look, look what happened to them. Yeah, got big stuff, didn't they? May or may not have been a mushroom. Yeah. We didn't talk about that either. No, I was going <laughs> to... I thought about bringing up Jean-Marc Allegro and Sacred Mushroom in the Cross, but, but yeah, there's only so much time. Yeah, um, I think he was. Uh, seemed to be down with that kind of thing, didn't he? Yeah. So I'm sure... Um, Certainly an open-minded to... guy. Yeah. Buy some merchandise. Buy some merch, yeah. Where? From the Amish loot chest, of course. Yes, link in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Um, Sends an email. The Armist Inquisition at gmail.com. Oh, that was the one I was going to say. Oh. <laughs> what about Discord? 
Oh, yeah. Oh, it's Discord, yeah. Hit us up on Discord and, you know, tell me about my fishies. Yeah, join us. We need to, uh, we need more people on there, I think. Yeah, it's a good source of uh, information. You get a little sneak peek of what's going to happen each week because I comb it for the uh, stories. A lot of shit posting as well, which is good. <laughs> Always good. Uh, memes? Yeah, memes. You can send memes to the Discord. Maybe you have a birthday coming up and you'd like a birthday shout-out. Oh. Free of charge. Well, should we give an example of what a birthday shout-out might sound like? Um, no. Okay. Because <laughs> I haven't got it. I don't know. I'm trying to think. I could just throw in that red button. <laughs> that red one? Yeah. Happy birthday, Hugh Janus. There you go. Yeah, if your name's Hugh Janus and you've got a birthday coming up. Yeah. Or it might be two people. It might be Hugh and Janice. Or Phil McCrevice. <laughs> Mike Oxlong. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've done the merch. Anything else? Social media links are all in the show notes. Yeah. Reviews. 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 Reviews, Ben. Uh, this is a good job you're here. On fire. feel yeah. busy. <laughs> Odyssey. If you're listening to the MP3 now, um, find us on Odyssey and uh, follow us there. That's our backup channel where you get the full-length videos because mm. our position on YouTube is precarious, to say the least. Is that because I'm showing some leg? Yes. Yeah, you <laughs> should start on OnlyFans. I know. Have yeah, you had another warning? Hmm? I've had another warning now on YouTube. Or... No, but I mean, they, they can terminate us at any point, can't yeah, they? I suppose, yeah, that's the thing. You yeah. know, what we've said over the last four years... Oh, no, actually, it's only maybe the last two years nearly that I've been on YouTube, isn't it? Yeah, because... Is it like historical if, if tweets? Did we go back? No. The real ridiculousness is like, you know, from four years ago, isn't it? Yeah, if you, yeah, that's, I mean, that's just the wild... That's just like some real free thinking that was happening four years ago. Zero force given. Imagine. Yeah. Or taken. Exactly, yeah. Or received. Yeah. And like some poor poor bastards are still going back, right back there. I know. The illuminated ones mm. start from... The shining ones. The shining ones. We might have a podcast coming up about the shining ones. What's the shining ones? The creators of civilization. Like Twilight. The gods. Oh, right, okay. The fallen angels. Like Maybe. Nephilim. Oh, oh no! Oh, no. Really? <laughs> not another giant. Yes. No, no, no! It's not going to be giants, and it's probably not. It's probably going to be old history of the um, formation of the church. Oh, okay. right, okay. Um, which is going to be mind blowing. I think we'll hopefully, fingers crossed, in a few weeks we'll have a mind blowing presentation. Presentation? On, oh, you're going to need to on gonna... what really happened. <laughs> well, after Golgotha. You know, it's not just going to be the history of the church. We will sex it up a bit, I'm sure. Right? There's well, probably <laughs> enough sex there. Anyway. I, I imagine there'll be... Will Magdalene get a, a shout-out then? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Absolutely key, Magdalene. Mm. All these mm. weird... Southern France, all these weird chapels to the black Magdalene. Ooh, black, as in... Yeah, all these, they all have black statues, statues of a black Magdalene. Oh. Quite strange, sort of weird cultural uh, branch. Segway? Branch, I would say, yeah. Different, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what's the best way to become a producer? Ben? Oh, uh, send us some money? 
I have it on good authority that some of the links are broken. Ooh. Uh, I haven't had time to sort it out yet. Thanks to uh, Lee for uh, making me aware of that. The donate button on the website still works. Um, but I think the, the link tree link doesn't work and maybe another donate text link on the website isn't working. But if you hit the PayPal donate button, we'll get it. Or you can just... Um, the PayPal me address is at the Amish Inquisition. It's easy enough to remember. So if you want to send toss us a coin, toss it that way. Yeah. Much appreciated. Cast your coins forth. Yes. Throw us your coin piss. <coughs> All right. Uh, what else? Um, Lend Matt Sweatman's book. Have I've you done, done that? I've done that. Yeah. Who's <laughs> yeah. Matt Sweatman's book? And who are you, who are you lending it to? I've got to write an essay over the next couple of weeks, but I'd rather read that book. It's got big writing in it. Well, just save yeah. it. It might save influence it. your essay if you start reading and writing at the same time. Yeah, you start writing about Pillar 43 in Enclosure D. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Gebekli Tepe and the Vulture Sigil and the Scorpion. <laughs> no, I know there's all kinds of animals on the on the things. It certainly is. Yeah, it's a very interesting book. Anyway, we better thank the producers for episode one nine seven. Absolutely. Yeah, it's time. It's time to big up the man Dems. Yo, we have uh, Rona Kesson, Lee from the Big Conspire, Helen from Berkshire, Nominals Notch, and Anonymous. Thank you. They are. Yeah. So. Amazing in their love. It's a miracle. Literally. The best mate. The dwarf. The cutouts. The grape. The cunt. The communist. The homophobe. The misogynist. The cripple. And the mother of. Ronnie Pickering! From hell. <laughs> yep, thanks for your support for another week. Mm. Absolutely tons to go through. Again, it's been a, a big news week. Loads of stuff on on the old Rona development, so I think we better move on quickly, swiftly. Do you don't understand them. COVID nineteen news. People have got to understand vaccination is going to be in the end. Your route to liberty. The magic vaccine. A big fat shot in the ass. From hell. Oh! You know, it's just, you know, super painful. Like a judgment day and terminating mode like. It's not going to allow us to go completely back to normal. Anal swab tests in the same ballpark as seasonal influenza. Because we're getting bored, we want to have fun. But I can't save you from not wearing a face mask. Read the standing orders. Read them and understand them. Epic dub. Let's go uh, to our Antipodean friends again. Oh no, is he getting wild? Channel 7? Uh, it's not Channel 7, it might be Channel 7, it might be Channel 9. Uh, oh, things, Channel 9. Yeah, things just keep getting more sinister in the, the land of Oz. The rest of the world is increasingly thinking Australia has lost the plot. And frankly, who can blame them with some of the most draconian restrictions anywhere in the world right now? And police resorting to pointing guns with so-called pepperball pellets at protesters in the streets of Melbourne. 
That's the uh, rubber bullets. They've been firing rubber bullets on the uh, protesters. Did he, there's pepper balls. Are they like loose pepper balls? I think peppercorn size or something maybe. Of, a cloud of pepper spray almost. Uh, rubber projectiles is how I've heard it described on other uh, news reports. So she says pepper balls. As far as I'm aware, it's rubber bullets. Yeah, it, I think pepper pepper balls gives a different vibe, doesn't it? Than like small balls of bacon. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, it gets uh, it gets darker. This isn't Australia, I know. What has happened to the lucky country? No wonder people overseas think we're barking mad. What else can you say about a country where dogs are shot dead in the name of COVID safety? Yes, as the Sydney Morning Herald reports, several impounded dogs due to be rescued by shelter have instead been shot dead. Berkshire Council killed the dogs to prevent volunteers at an animal shelter from travelling to pick up the animals. Oh. So, yeah, they were rescue dogs. There was, uh, there was five dogs. Right. Uh, and they went to shoot them. Uh, unfortunately, one of the dogs had just had a litter of ten puppies, so they shot them too. They shot them? Yeah, all of them. But why Why did they not just put them down with, like, the... the, the mag- uh, not the... Uh, the... Uh, the drugs. Yeah, the drugs or whatever. Put them to sleep. Do they, is it normal practice to shoot dogs that are impounded or something in Australia? Yeah, just horses, I think. Yeah, shooting puppies. Is that normal practice? <laughs> I don't think so. But we're not in normal times, are we? And the only reason they did that was because somebody was coming to pick them up. The people who volunteered at the shelter were going to go and pick them up. Right. Well, you can't leave your house. You can't leave five kilometres from your home. Oh, right. Okay. No, so don't no bother coming. We've shot them all. <laughs> Shit. That's wild, isn't it? Yeah. Dismantling Asda. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you can't go shopping. I'm just about to go shopping. Nope. <laughs> We've dismantled Asda. <laughs> Try again. Premier of Victoria, Dana Andrews, has been ruffling feathers once more with his proclamations. You know, there's a whole bunch of people down the Rye Back Beach last night who thought the best thing to do was to go and watch the sunset. I'm sure it was a beautiful sunset. But that's not in the spirit or in, or, or in the letter of these rules. So it's not laws, is it? It's rules. It's not in the letter of the rules. No. Oh, this is, that was mentioned, wasn't it, when we were in our lockdowns, was the spirit. It's not in the spirit of uh, the rule. I'm pretty sure it's actually illegal there. To? To go and watch the sunset. Right, okay. Yeah. I don't think you have You're to not allowed out of your house for an hour's exercise or whatever. Yeah, you're not. You're watching the sunset. You're not exercising. Be exercising. For fuck's sake, your eye sphincters. Yeah. He had more. Sunday, I think, is going to be quite a nice day. Yep, at home, at home. Otherwise, it'll be lots of Sundays spent in hospital. Are they going to shoot them as well? <laughs> I don't know. That's going to they're going to like burn the beach or something. Shoot the beach. Such a twat. Shoot the sun. Yeah. I mean, um, again, it's this kind of thing that w- when does it end? What can, What else can you do? You have to kneel. <laughs> Hope. Mask. <laughs> kneel. <laughs> kneel before Zod. You have to submit. Yeah, it's a bit, a bit crazy, isn't it, really? Can't see it ended anytime soon over there. 
I don't know. You can watch the sunset on TV anyway. I don't know what the problem is. <laughs> I wonder um, how the vaccine uptake has been with um, sort of alleged uh, side effects that have been widely reported. Well, I don't think they've had AstraZeneca over there, have they? And Pfizer's only just bit. I don't know. I don't know all the facts, but they, they did, there's certainly not many people vaccinated in Australia. Oh, it's about twenty mm. percent, I think. Maybe. And is that because of um, availability? It was uh, supplies. Do you remember the EU blocked a, a big um, shipment to Australia a few months back? Yeah. Because they wanted it for themselves. Mm. Mm. Why can't you just go to a restaurant and have a nice bottle of red and just behave your fucking self? Why do you have to go in a fucking pub crawl, mate? <laughs> Get used to it. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah, Antipodean uh, eavesdroppers. Yeah. Buckle in. Let's move on to the UK. Oh, not that place. Uh, we've just ordered another 35 million doses of the Pfizer. 35 million? Yeah. Okay. For uh, the back end of next year. Oh, right. For, okay. the, for next year's boosters. Uh, the UK has ordered 35 million more doses of Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, which will be delivered in the second half of 2022. The government said it was preparing for a programme of COVID boosters to protect the most vulnerable this, this year. The only, oh, the only logic year. I can mm. think of behind those boosters is to boost against any change, so like if there's a, a gamma variant or whatever. So I'm hoping they've not ordered 35 million doses of the current vaccine. No, they haven't. No. It will be a reformulated one, right, okay. I believe. The government said, uh, yeah, most vulnerable this year, Health and Social Care Secretary Savage Javid said the move was intended to future-proof our vaccine programme. Uh, the UK has now ordered more than 540 million doses. <laughs> 540. <laughs> UK population is about 67 million, isn't yeah. it? The UK has now ordered more than 540 million doses of eight different COVID vaccines. Four have so far been approved for use in the UK. The deal with Pfizer means the UK has ordered more doses of, of that COVID vaccine, 135 million uh, than any other, so Pfizer is winning. <laughs> Isn't it? Yeah. It is. Winning the war. Team Halo is <laughs> doing it. Pfizer marketing department, they're kicking ass. Yeah. They skewered AstraZeneca early on with the mm. blood clot stuff. Same with Janssen. Mm-hmm. And now they're crying because they were supposed to be the one shot vaccine. And now they're asking for a second booster because they're like, Fucking hell, we had a one-shot vaccine, and it was the cheapest, and everyone wants the Pfizer. Yeah. Because, you know, they've got the best marketing team out of a lot of them. Uh, I mentioned the other week, I don't know if it's last week or the other week, that I felt there may be some sort of unholy union between the UK government and the UK media. Mm-hmm. And that one of the, the blood supply of this insipid relationship might be advertising revenue. Oh, like a media-controlled state. Yeah. The other way around. No. <laughs> and uh, so I did a bit of... I looked into it because I didn't have any evidence <laughs> or numbers. Anyway, uh, this is from the 23rd of March, 2021. UK government beats Unilever and Sky as biggest UK advertiser in 2020. UK government has dominated a top 10 list of UK advertisers for 2020 after outspending all other contenders with an ad splurge of 164 million. 
The Nielsen rankings indicate that the government boosted its advertising spend by a whopping 238% compared with the previous year as it ramped up public messaging, not propaganda, in the wake of the pandemic. Uh, illustrating the scale of these spending shifts, Public Health England also appeared in the top 10. Wow. Not just the government. Uh, top 10 advertiser list on the back of the highest growth in budget of any organisation at close to eight times its previous year's spend on advertising. I would have thought the UK government could angle free advertising for a health message rather than having to buy advertising space. Why? I don't know, because it's important. More important than fairy liquid or whatever. That doesn't pay the bills if you're ITV or Sky News. No. Or The Guardian or The Daily Mail. I thought they'd get a free pass. Being a being no. the government, pay more probably. So we've we've bought it basically. Yes, yes. we've paid to have ourselves propagandized. Five hundred billion. <laughs> we love it. Uh, the UK government tripled its ad spend in the crisis year, displacing traditional big spenders such as Unilever and Sky. In the process, the funding bonanza has powered a series of public information campaigns such as "Stay Alert," "Control the Virus," "Save Lives," to "Hands Face Space." To uh, Hope Mass Neil. Uh, so there you are. There's some evidence. So the UK government is the biggest spender on advertising in our country. The adverts are shit as well. You think they get like John Lewis ones for, <laughs> for the money they're spending? Well, they're not doing the. I've not seen the uh, people gasping for breath adverts. Why hasn't recently? Ed Sheeran written a song about it? They took yeah. a lot of flack for them ones. Yeah, they did, didn't they? Yeah, not cool, man. (laughs) It wasn't cool, was it? But they're not around now, are they? No. How much did they spend on the Green Cross Code, man? David Prowse, was it? It was Darth Vader, yeah. I'm guessing less than 164 million. Or the terrifying, um, what was the one for the nuclear war? Oh, Duck and Cover, was it? (laughs) Yeah. Where the wind blows. Yeah. That was terrifying. Still terrifying. I think I watched... I'm pretty sure I remember watching that in in primary school. school. yeah. Gosh, I don't know. You were probably at the back reading a book about fucking Jesus and mushrooms. Smoking under your desk. (laughs) At home. Whatever. Let's move on to France. (laughs) Did you see the picnic uh, protests this week? No. The picnic protests over the Pas Sanitaire. The COVID pass that you need to uh, go to a cafe. No, so much more romantic. Oh, yeah, I know. Sorry? Sounds so much more romantic. Pass sanitaire. Can I see your uh, pass sanitaire? Uh, Voulez vous un pass sanitaire? I think that means would you you (laughs) want a a pass sanitaire to give me a. I don't know. That's awful. (laughs) I don't don't have a a pass sanitaire. Uh, Disqualified. <laughs> yeah, yeah the, uh, they all got together and had a picnic in the high streets oh, in front okay. of all the cafes. Nice. Say, so, you know, we're not going to uh, we're not going to be patrons of your businesses because it's sort of. Uh, but it's not the businesses that are uh, suggesting that. I imagine is it? Doesn't matter. I know you. What? What else can you do? 
Well, nothing, but that's how you get the government to, to uh, listen, I suppose, isn't it? Yeah, it's just, it was a, an idea to make a scene, wasn't it, I guess? Mm. That's all it was. Yeah, like they do. Yeah, there are changes to the rules in French schools coming. Now the school year is sta- starting again. Yeah. Next week is back to school for millions of children around the world. The same is true here in France. French school kids heading back into the classroom next Thursday. And the French Education Ministry has just unveiled the new health protocol for schools. Well, France 24's health editor Julia Seegers with me now and set to talk more about that. What are the new rules? So first of all, there will be no COVID health pass. And this is very important. The reason why is because the health ministry wants schools to stay as accessible as possible. All kids from kindergarten to high school uh, will also be able to attend classes on site. As of first grade, they'll have to wear face masks indoor. They'll also have to respect social distancing and also try to not mingle with classmates from other classrooms. The- so sounds not doesn't sound too bad so far other than putting three-year-olds in face masks. That's a bit weird, isn't it? Mm. What? Face masks for that, that young. They're just Well, just from a practical standpoint, all yeah. you would do all day is go, your mask on, mask on. Yeah, it's stupid. Yeah, exactly. It is. Yeah, that's what yeah. I mean. But at least they're not denying uh, unvaccinated children. Yeah. Because you can have the, uh, it's authorised from uh, the age of 12. Oh, um, yeah. In France. Yeah. Anyway. There will also be reinforced ventilation measures. Now, in the event of a contamination in a classroom, those are, of course, questions that... Contamination? I know, yeah. Ooh, really? There's contamination in classrooms all the time, like kids pissing and yeah, shooting yeah. themselves and yeah. smearing stuff on walls. It's a strange word to use in regards to a virus, isn't it? You're contaminated. Exactly, yeah. Parents have today. Uh, the seven-day isolation period will not be required for vaccinated children. Um, so it's the same as the rule for the rest of the population. But for unvaccinated children, they will have to isolate uh, for seven days. It raises questions on how to teach kids, partly uh, on-site and remotely. Now, in uh, primary schools, as children are, are not old enough to get vaccinated, they will shut down completely uh, uh, classes for seven days. Right. How's that going to work? You get an outbreak in your class. Half the kids are vaccinated. You know, it's high school, so they're 12. Half the kids are vaccinated and half aren't. The ones that aren't vaccinated get have to go home and have homeschooling yeah. while the other half stay in the classroom. Yeah. Not thought this through, have they? It's similar to, um, we had bubbles, didn't we? Up until Freedom Day. Well, it's starting again. It'll be starting again next week. I th- we don't have bubbles next week. No, we don't. No. Our school. Basically, it's the entire yeah. class what? is a bubble at our school. All right. Well, yeah, really? Year one, we'll play the rule together. Is, uh, anyone vaccinated and children don't have to isolate. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And, but you have to get tested. And whilst you wait for your test, you don't have to isolate either. No, or no, contacts thereof. Yeah. Mm. Well, I just reminded. Sorry, these classes are still not allowed to mix. Then, so you years groups can mix with themselves, or year one can mix with themselves, oh. year two can mix with themselves, but no intermingling. That's between. what I mean. Yes, yeah, so sorry. He in his school, it's I think reception year one and year two are all allowed to intermingle and for the first time, which will be nice. Mm. Yeah, it'll almost be like having a normal education, like a normal school. Yeah. yeah.
Everybody is 12 years old, the minimum for vaccinations here in France. So what about school outings, though, for those older kids? In theory, they would need a health pass to go, say, to a museum or something. Exactly. It's going to be something very tricky indeed, Jeannie, because uh, as some of you know, as of August uh, 9th, uh, a sanitary health pass is mandatory for all adults. So they have to show proof of vaccination of past infection uh, or a negative PCR test to be able to access, let's say, cafes, restaurants, uh, outdoor terraces, but also care homes, long distance uh, transport. And this health pass will be applied and will be mandatory for uh, children above the age of 12 as of September 30th. So they don't have a mandatory health pass in schools, but they do in other public spaces. And that's going to be a problem. Now, a lot of people are saying that, uh, you know, this doesn't... A sanitary pass. It's just a name for it. The pass sanitaire. It's the COVID pass. Oh, okay. Well, I just thought it was quite interesting. He said sanitary pass and uh, people who were contaminated. Yeah. Yeah. Sanitaire, pass sanitaire. Yeah, so from September the 9th, whatever she said, the pass sanitaire will apply to 12-year-olds and up. Mm. If you aren't jabbed as a 12-year-old, you can't go to a cafe, museum. Jeez, where are the uh, yellow jackets? They were going apeshit over nothing a couple of years ago. I thought they'd be up in arms over this. Yeah, you would think the France would be... Uh... Everything will be on fire in the yeah. streets. I mean, no, they're just doing picnic protests instead. All right. Maybe they'll just do more of that, hopefully. Let's mm-hmm. see. Well, I mean, it'd be interesting to see what happens, see if it's actually enforceable when it comes. I don't mean enforceable, I mean whether it actually works or whether people just say, well, we're not doing this. I think. Well, it depends if people decide where the fucking line is, doesn't it? Has it come into force yet? What's the what's the deal? Is there? A yeah, the help the past sanitaire is in force for adults now. As mm. of I think she said the ninth of September, right. it'll be for twelve year olds. If your twelve year old isn't double vaccinated, they can't go to a cafe, public space, public transport. Right. Still, this Xbox, right? Mm. I mean, yeah, that's I'd, yeah, that's a bit crazy, isn't it? Really. Yeah. I would say. And, you know, coming back to that whole thing of um, children... They'll be here next. ...taking the risk for uh, the older people, basically. Yep. You know, uh, as far as it's vulnerable 12 to 15-year-olds in the UK at the moment... As it stands, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But we all know what's going to happen, don't we? Mm. The rest of the world is going down this route, and I'm sure we'll follow. Yeah. Seems to be, It'll be a twelve-year-old healthy kids, and then some uh, efficacy study will come out for five to eight-year-olds, or it'll be eight to twelve-year-olds, and then five to eight-year-olds, and then that'll be it. You'll uh, have to decide where you're going to stand on it. In the, at the end of the day, pretty soon, I would say. Mm. I don't think this is going to blow over. What do you do when everyone's vaccinated? They won't be. I won't be. My kids won't be. Well, what what did he do when they... Oh, you get a booster. Don't get your boosters. Oh, yeah. I forgot about the boosters. Yeah. So it's looking like every eight months, the CDC is... The, the, the conversations they're having now is it's going to be either eight months or five months. Oof. According to Biden this week. Jesus. Yeah. That's the way it's going. Let's move on to Ireland. Got a video here from Tracy O'Mahony. Regarding Ogon, 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 Ogon transplants. <laughs> Sticky. <laughs> <laughs> 
Last week, I became aware that Beaumont <laughs> Hospital commenced a policy whereby unvaccinated patients would not be allowed to proceed with organ transplants. I had been waiting to get official confirmation of this new policy before making the information public. Today, I received a copy of a letter from Beaumont dated the 3rd of August 2021, which reads as follows. Dear colleagues, as COVID vaccination is now widely available, and I am sure the majority of your patients have availed of same, I would request that you furnish me as soon as possible with a list of patients who are on the transplant waiting list who are currently not vaccinated. We would strongly urge patients that are potential transplant recipients be immediately vaccinated for COVID. In view of the risk of transmission, particularly of new COVID variants, we feel that it will not be possible to continue to offer transplantation to unvaccinated recipients. Therefore, if your patient cannot be vaccinated for whatever reason, we would recommend that they be suspended from the waiting list with immediate effect until the COVID crisis has passed and there is no risk of transmission of COVID for the individual patient or to members of staff or other patients who are immunosuppressed on the transplant unit. Recipients. Yeah, people on the transplant, well, people who were on the transplant list in Southern Ireland. They're being advised to be taken off unless they're vaccinated. Jeez. Are they taking organs from people who've died of COVID? Hmm? Are they taking organs from people who've died of COVID? They're generally riddled, aren't they? Mm. It's a vascular disease. I wouldn't have thought that they'd, uh, they'd be any good to transplant anyway. No, it's the recipients who yeah, are being so taken they, off. They want to jab recipients to reduce the possibility of them getting COVID. But you think they'd... Oh, no, to stop the staff getting COVID, it said. As well. Staff as well, right, okay. To stop the spread of variants and to stop staff and other people in the unit getting COVID. God. Oh, well. All right, let's move on to Northern Ireland and the curious tale of Dr. Anne McCloskey. Here we go. Um, she did like an eight-minute diatribe on social media. I've just got like a one-minute clip just to give you an idea. Um, this time last year, I've been working since the beginning of this, this COVID crisis. I retired as a GP um, two years ago, and I went back to work at the big, in April of last year. And this time last year, there was nothing happening. I mean nothing. This year, it's different. The hospitals are full, and our place, the out-of-hours, is, is jammed with people who are testing positive for, for uh, in the PCR test and yet who had two doses of injections. The other thing I am seeing in increasing numbers, and it's so distressful to even think about it because I know that they're coming after the children next, but I'm seeing young people, healthy, previously fit young people who are damaged. God forbid that it's irreparably, but uh, I saw a girl this week who had a clot in, in her upper arm, a teenager. I have, in 40 years in medicine, I have never, ever seen an upper, upper arm clot in a healthy young person. But worse, she was told by the, the consultant at the hospital and by her own doctor, oh, no, 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 this is nothing to do with the fact that it happened the first, the first week after your second injection. No, no, you, you must have hurt yourself at the gym. This girl's fit and slim and healthy and active. I saw this morning, or rather I spoke to, 
a young man who has been unable to get out of bed now for two weeks since taking his, his injection. Again, told by a GP whom he trusts that, oh, that's it, working, you're going to set up a really good immune response. The fact that you're absolutely floored and can't get on with your normal life is normal after an immunisation. This is a lie. Hmm. So she retired two years ago. And then she, do you remember back in like March or April last year, there was this big drive to get recently retired physicians yeah. and nurses and anaesthetists uh, oh, yeah, yeah. and whatever back in to come back because I guess they'd need less training and whatnot. They could mm. just slip back into it. So she volunteered and she started doing out of hours work, evenings and weekends as a GP. And uh, she released this on social media mm-hmm. and uh, she's been suspended. Obviously, yeah. So yeah. she's got one less, one less GP now working in Northern Ireland. Um, I wonder if it would affect her pension and stuff. Uh-huh. What has she got to gain? Yeah, I know that's the the question, isn't it? By saying it, especially if it's true. Well, it's why would she be lying? I know. Yeah. Why did she retire in the first place? Just because she was old, or mm. I wonder what she would get. Um, you know, if it's investigated or whatever, and what she was saying was true in so much that, I mean, she's giving an opinion, isn't she, at the end of the... Is she saying, I don't know, about why why these people have got these things? Um, and her opinion is that it's caused by the vaccine. Um, so, you know, I wouldn't... Yeah, I mean, in, in normal times, would she be suspended for that? Say, for example, it was like a, a new measles vaccine or, you know, whatever, one that we we take regularly. A flu vaccine. Mm. Probably not. It's not as not as uh, shouted about, is it? No, that's what I mean. The thing with the flu vaccine is that it works the first year. It's when you take it every year, after two or three years, your actual chances of getting seriously hospitalised increase every mm. time you take the dose thereafter. Mm-hmm. Where did you read that? Science. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Science, Marcus Smith. I thought that was pretty well known. No? No. Okay. Fact check it, eavesdroppers. Okay. I thought that was I thought that was pretty well known. But I don't know if it's more lethal, but it seemed to seem to hint that hospitalization was much more likely. Maybe there's something else in play. Maybe you're just one year older. So you're more likely to be hospitalised by a flu anyway. But then, well, what's the point of having the fucking vaccine? I don't know. Anyway, she's been suspended, so it's fine. She'll just go away now. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So, Whatever the, the crazy woman was trying to gain from, from you know ruining her reputation on social media. Mm. By obviously lying to everyone. Has the post been taken down then, I guess? I don't know, actually. I bet he got I, a lot of hits. I, it was still on Twitter when I recorded the clips today, so right, okay. still there. But I think these things, they get germinated like a mycelium network, don't they? Yeah, they she'll do. have an agent now. That's, that's <laughs> the keys. And her own podcast. And her own podcast, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Jackie Weaver. That's, yeah. that's the, the authority. Behind <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, let's go to the US. The big story of the week. 
This morning, major new developments in the fight against COVID-19. The FDA granting full approval for Pfizer's vaccine, the fastest vaccine approval in FDA history. Those who've been waiting for full approval should go get your shot now. Pfizer becoming the first vaccine to move past emergency use authorization. Their shot, made with mRNA, does not contain any part of the coronavirus and does not alter people's DNA. In order to get full FDA approval, Pfizer had to undergo a more stringent review, submitting results from its ongoing clinical trials and proving substantial evidence of effectiveness. The FDA not... Ongoing clinical trials, the operative word there. Mm. Another couple of years to go, yeah. Just took their time and did the due diligence that needed to be done, but did it quickly and efficiently. The move paves the way for more corporations, government, and schools to issue vaccine mandates. The Pentagon now preparing to require the shot for its 1.3 million active duty troops. New York City announcing shots will now be required for all school employees, with weekly testing no longer an option. And workers at United Airlines have five weeks to show the now required proof of vaccination well the- yeah so the the what were the examples there the army mm-hmm. skill workers united airline workers disqualified 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 yeah mandates coming thick and fast and more and more difficult isn't it mm. yeah it will be to, to navigate if you don't you know you decide for some reason of bodily autonomy that you don't want to have it. It's mm. going to get very difficult for you, especially if you're an employee, I would say. I wonder if there's some kind of class action that could be made, especially with like a, a right-leaning... Uh, well, this is what's interesting with the FDA approval because uh, the approval, as far as I'm aware, uh, gets rid of the liability shield. Right, okay, does it? But um, the approval only applies to the approved dose of two shots. So I detect a bit of sleight of hand here. (laughs) Right, It's been approved now. Uh, In a matter of days, the US is going to okay the third jab. Yeah. And that's still, that will be under EUA. So you can't... Uh, Well, it was the third jab. Yeah, that's, yeah, uh, yeah, that's what's tough, done, yeah. you know. You should have just had the first two. But they told me to get the third yeah. one! <laughs> yeah, that's like... <laughs> Every five months or eight months, we haven't decided yet. <laughs> yeah. Wait for more science to come in. <laughs> but it should be five months or eight months. I mean, how long is it since... It's eight months now, isn't it? Because it was... it. No, it was December, wasn't it? 12th of... 10th of December, I think? So we're on about nine months now since we started. Mm-hmm. So would you, would you the uh, boosters? Still waiting, aren't we, for the JCVI? They won't. They're under a lot of pressure to make a decision, and they're very being very quiet, aren't they? They're not saying anything yet. Good. Yeah. Is this about the booster? You mean? Mm. I thought it. I thought has it not been approved for like over fifties or something? The booster. No decision's been made yet. Right. Okay. As far as I know. Well, I don't know. Probably more. Israel. They've started. Right, okay. And they were the first country well, to, to ramp up. We're getting the time where they need to do it, don't they? If they're going to do it. Jab, jab. I'm amazed there's not been any other variants. It's been Delta, Delta, Delta yeah, for ages. Has, and yet it? there was a handful. There was like the Brazilian yeah. variant. Came the out Suffolk. Quickly. 
the Surrey variant. The Surrey variant. The UK, which became the UK variant that everyone was crying about. Alpha. Alpha to the Omega. Mm. So what's... The they do don't think, need it yet. The Delta's doing exactly the job. That's what I mean. It's just been turned down again, hasn't it? Yeah, we don't mm. need to worry. Wait till winter. Yeah, or when more vaccine doses are going off and they need using. Do you know what the other thing is? Is as well. I think it will be a lot to do with schools not being in, and the amount of testing surely must go down. Because oh, the, the only reason um, that I, you know my kids have been tested is so they can go back to school and nursery, basically. So you know if they've got something, they've been kicked out, or you know of those rules then they've been tested so they can go back basically what happened in scotland was their kids went back a week earlier and the cases spiked exactly that's what i mean so it's cases fair. though i know yeah, well yeah. but that's what's going to happen isn't it as yeah. soon as they go back it's going to go through the roof yeah. again and they'll start getting jittery yeah. and all these epidemiologists will turn up on news night again <sighs> i think we need a circuit breaker you know yeah circuit i think we breaker. need a circuit breaker just just a month. Just four weeks. And what'll happen? Fuck all. Yeah. Oh, we're gonna have to extend this circuit breaker. Things will be better in the spring. Yeah. Three just months. give up another Christmas. Three weeks to flatten the curve. We've been here before, it's the same playbook. And we're gonna sit through it all again, I'm afraid. Mm-hmm. I feel. Feel that's what's coming because it seems that these vaccines aren't very good. And it's not going to be... Oh, I said this fucking months ago. This isn't going to be the silver bullet that gets us out of this. Mm. said it fucking six months ago. And the whole point of that is to reduce the severity of the disease. And the, and the ca- high case rate, fine. But it's a much lower hospitalisation and death rate than it was when the case rate was this high last time. Look at what's happening in the hospitals. They're collapsing. That, and that was the reason behind the lockdowns, isn't it? To protect the NHS. Yeah. They're collapsing. They're on the brink of collapse in fucking August. It's because they don't have any test tubes because of Brexit. Oh, <laughs> oh we might go. Oh, that's the next story, actually. Unintended consequences. Oh, no, I'll just, I'll just let... Uh, I'll have to play this. I know everyone's played it, but um, White House spokesperson Jen Psaki was given a briefing, press briefing, on behalf of her boss, creepy Uncle Joe, and uh, she let the, uh, the mask slip. COVID-19 and uh, our efforts to address the global pandemic. To- the global pandemic. Whoops. Anyway. Oh, did did Unintended consequences. Major hospitals warn blood, blood tube shortage is now critical. Segue. It's almost <laughs> if you've been reading my notes. <laughs> hospitals have told staff the shortage of blood collection tubes hitting the NHS has now received... Critical levels with a ban on all but urgent blood tests being imposed in some parts of the health service. A message to staff at Leeds Teaching Hospitals Trust seen by the Independent warned staff they must not order blood tests unless it was absolutely clinically urgent. Earlier this month, the NHS warned its supply chain for blood collection tubes was being affected by a global shortage of tubes. Not Brexit. (laughs) A global shortage of tubes. Yeah, because... The world shut down. Yeah, and Suez Canal as well. Same with microchips. Oh, yeah. This is why I can't get a shed. No, I can't get anything. The, um, what's it called, that ship? Yeah, the Evergreen. Uh, Evergreen, yeah. Timber, UPVC, yeah. cable prices that I buy are up 80%. 80%? On a year, yeah, because the oh. world economy shut down. 
Is that because of Brexit? Yeah, because of Brexit. <laughs> China shut all the uh, factories down. This is a bad time, Mad, isn't it, for you to come and fit that plug socket in the back garden? Then don't need any wife for that. Excuse <laughs> me, channel of water. Global shortage of tubes made by medical company Beckton Dickinson and stops some fertility testing screening for pre pre diabetes. So screening. Allergies and other blood disorders. So this isn't going to have any any knock-on effects, is it? Cancelling routine, routine screening for diabetes and blood disorders. Well, this is... Do you know when we were talking about sort of delays and stuff? Um, uh, I know someone, I'm going to keep them secret, um, that found something in a personal part of their body and was referred to a to the hospital... Um, a light bulb, like a lump or a, a sorry, and um, was uh, sort of seen in hospital and examined within um, two weeks and discharged. It was okay, so I was quite surprised by that. I thought they would end up waiting longer for the, the initial appointment. Well, you got to remember, it's only the people who are experiencing the delay who are going to be shouting about it. Well, no, yeah, but I mean, you know, that wasn't my experience, I suppose. I was expecting it to be sort of like six weeks, two um, months or whatever, wait, you know, yes. and waiting for that initial appointment for the screening or whatever. What's the point? Why did your wife have an action man up her butt? <laughs> it wasn't an action man. Oh, what was it? G.I. Joe. Force. It was... The manager Force. It was a gold-white mountain minnow. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, carrying on. Elsewhere, the Royal United Hospitals Bath Foundation Trust has told GPs in the area they must cut the number of blood tests they are requesting by more than 50%. Cut it. <laughs> Disqualified. Uh, in a letter seen by the Health Service Journal, the trust said, we have seen a 6% reduction in the volume of GP tests, but we are now having to ask that all non-essential bloods are not requested. We're aiming for more than a 50% reduction. This means stopping all tests for health checks, preventative medicine, and monitoring. So, like all of the preventative stuff, which is the most important. What's going to? What's this going to? What's the knock-on effect going to yeah, be in exactly, a year, two exactly, years? Yeah. Well, this is why I keep saying the NHS is done. It's finished. We've crippled it by taking the measures we did to save the NHS. We're going to end up destroying it. Oh God, he's white. He's wild-eyed. <laughs> <laughs> the BMA knuckles. <laughs> the BMA, the British Medical. Oh no, it's not. That's BMJ, isn't it? I don't know what the BMA is. British What's Medical Association. Association. Association yeah. Yeah. Has raised the impact this could have on regular tests for NHS health checks, the monitoring of quality of care, and medication reviews. It would also be reasonable to ask healthcare staff to simply delay these tests until a later date. Not only for the sake of our patients, but also the entire system, which is already tackling an enormous backlog of care. In quotes from the BMA. While NHS England has provided some guidance for clinicians to follow, no doctor wants the consequence of delayed diagnosis for patients due to these shortages. And they also need to know they are protected from any possible negligence claims. We need to have adequate supplies of these tubes resumed without further delay. It is vital going forward that processes are are put in place to ensure that supply chains of medical equipment are maintained at all times. So the BMA, the the medics, know 
that mm-hmm. this is going to cost people lives and people are going to start suing for negligence over it. Yeah. So this doesn't sound like a good position to be in. Yeah, we need Matt Hancock's friends again, don't we? Start yes. repurposing his takeaway packaging plant for unusable test tubes. Didn't he burn two million in his back garden? Yeah, because they were all fucked. Yeah. yeah. It's just, uh, we'll just add this onto the list of unintended consequences of the lockdown policy. Yeah. The ever-growing list. Um, going on to your, your friend, your friend with a, a butt problem. Yeah. Who was seen remarkably quickly. Yeah. Spare a thought for breast cancer survivor Lisa Harker. Uh, she's been suffering from a strange, unexplained chronic pain condition since she was treated for cancer. Good news is she got her rheumatology referral letter through. Finally, I have it here. Dear Lisa, you are currently on the rheumatology routine waiting list in the Belfast Health and Social Care Trust. The current waiting time for a first appointment as a routine referral is six years. Wow. Six years? As a service, we acknowledge this situation is far from ideal, and we would like to apologise that you are still waiting to be seen at clinic. We are working hard, both internally and with commissioners, to reduce the waiting times for new referrals. However... We do not expect this situation to improve significantly in the near future. Sounds like Douglas Adams wrote that letter. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? Do you know what? Um, I don't say, I hesitate to say we because it was never something uh, that I did. But uh, in a service that I used to work in, um, <laughs> when the waiting list got ridiculously long, what they did is they sent a letter to everybody on the waiting list and said, please can you ring or write to us? And say, do you still need an appointment? And all the people didn't ring or write, um, they just kicked off the waiting list. And they got like the waiting list down from 18 months to nothing. They must be dead. Yeah, basically, yeah. <laughs> we, yeah. we joke, but th- I bet there are quite a few people who are dead on an NHS waiting list. Yeah, yeah, it happens. Yeah. Happens quite a lot. Yeah. If you are dead, please contact us immediately. <laughs> Because you were waiting so long for an appointment. Yeah. If you're thinking of dying, leaving the country, <laughs> or becoming terminally ill, please contact the service. You're probably ineligible. Do you see uh, Jeff Bezos has launched a, a, a new penis rocket? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. One to 66 scale of the Blue Origin Shepherd for the great price of 69 <laughs> A working rocket, penis-shaped. Yeah. Oh, you mean a, mo- a model you can buy? That's what, yeah, $69.99. Oh, eavesdroppers. Working. If anyone wants to donate $69 How to me is, so yeah. I can have a, What's a, a, pe- a life-size six- penis rocket. Well, let's say one sixty-sixth. Asking for a friend, no way. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't want to end up in a again. <laughs> it's probably about a full long. <laughs> you can manage that. Like a small, like a normal-sized penis there. <laughs> A small, normal size. <laughs> so, yeah. no, how how big do you think the original rocket was? Pretty big. People went inside it. <laughs> Ooh, did they? <laughs> I think so. Oh, he went in it with his fucking cowboy hat, didn't yeah. he? Oh, did he wear a cowboy hat? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeehaw. He's divorced now. He can do things like wear <laughs> cowboy hats. Fucking class, classless. Regrettable things. Yeah. Bill Gates will be wearing cowboy hats next. <laughs> Mark my words. Oh. My wife posted uh, a video from the 1995 Windows. <laughs> have you seen that meme slash video? No. I'll have to share it. It's very funny. Put it on Discord. Yeah, I will. What's it do? 
Um, it's just, oh, I think it's uh, it's Start Me Up, Rolling Stones, is it? Start me up. And they all start dancing to it, including Bill Gates, and it's like... <laughs> oh, I've seen it. Yeah, the launch video. Yeah, it's awful. Oh, God. Oh, no. Yeah, I have seen it. He is uh, an awkward dancer. Yeah, all of them are. And there's like one guy who just gets into it and strides across it. I bet the Apple guys are way better dancers than the Microsoft guys. Yeah. Is that so, not the idea? Were Microsoft trying to emulate how uh, Apple used to do it when they released a new product? Um, maybe. One of my, my youngest son has uh, developed some snake hips and um, at random times, anywhere, could be anywhere, in the street, mm. in, the sh- in the bath, um, when we're getting ready for bed, we're going shopping at the playground, he'll start doing the winky dance. And um, helicopter, and uh, no, well, it, it is, but he's got clothes <laughs> on, so you can't tell what he's doing. So, so at random times, you'll just stop. He kind of just goes when the rhythm hits, man, you just got to go with it. And then, and then my eldest son has to join in, so they both start dancing. And that's oh, it's the youngest one who's doing this, yeah. Wow, Matt, please tell me you join in when those two are doing, <laughs> yeah, I would do, but I'd knock them out. <laughs> With your 166 <laughs> scale penis. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> it is uh, It's quite funny when he does that. And everyone has to join in. Is the music playing or not? Can he just feel it? In his head. In his mind. <laughs> it just starts. It goes down. So, um, wow. If my wife's watching this, she'll say, oh, God, you look awful. <laughs> Yeah. He's got rhythm. He's got snake hips, but I just, she just says that I'm all jerky and <laughs> sloth hips. Yeah, <laughs> well. penisy, <laughs> all jagged edges, mm-hmm. all pointy and stuff. Oh man, I don't anyway. know why. I, yeah, I don't, what, what were we talking about? Penises. This morning, yeah. <laughs> Eamon and Ruth were on this morning this week, giving us some advice for the warning signs to look out for. Regarding our children becoming incels. Oh, because... Uh, yeah, we don't want to say that guy's name. Don't uh, yes. don't publicise people who do heinous... I don't even know his name. Good. No. That's the way it should be. Yeah, we shouldn't glamorise them no, yeah. at all. So, uh, yeah, there was a, a mass shooting and the uh, perpetrator, it seems, was involved in this fucking incel community. So, Eamon and Ruth... Uh, spoke to someone who's an expert in this domain about what to look out for if you're a concerned parent. Can parents look out for maybe language that they use, young, their young sons might be using, or behaviour that they might have? Yes, they can. So there are lots of bits of language that might be red flags referring to people as normies or as triggered. Normies is the word incels use for people outside their community. Uh, triggered, based, cucked, describing being red-pilled or black-pilled, which are words they use yeah. to describe being infiltrated are you an incel? <laughs> you use all of those words. You yeah. say red-pilled. As your yeah. parents, Phil, we are concerned. Yeah. Uh, you should be concerned with the shit job of reporting that this is. Oh, that's been broadcast it on around. TV. That's exactly what an incel would say. Yeah. It is, because uh, she's talking, she's saying these words like they're exclusive to the incel community. She yeah. said they were Whereas exclusive. red-pilled and black-pilled, have been around a long... They've been out since The Matrix came out. Phil, she's on television. I think I know I'm going to trust. <laughs> well, yeah, you can. Um, 
Very strange. There's more, I think. Into the ideology. Yeah. And it's worth saying as well that they see this as a kind of conduit to other forms of extremism. It isn't completely separate from far white, white nationalist, white supremacist mm. movements. They actually really see it as a slipway. So parents might see a combination of perhaps also racism creeping in as well. The incel community is a very racist community. This is a racist ideology. And of course, white supremacist is a deeply misogynistic mm. ideology. Yeah. Shit, and she voted for Brexit. This all adds up. And Pepe Le Frog, that's involved in the incel... Uh... Kek? Kekistan? Yeah. Haven't you got a Kekistani passport? I watched the documentary about Pepe Le Frog. Where's the, the race How's element Pepe to, to incels? That's um, well, <clears throat> well, if you come it from the Pepe Le Frog... Um, mm. uh, Kekistan? ...viewpoint, yeah, then... It was allegedly a lot of incels that were posting these Pepe Le Frog um, far right <clears throat> uh, memes. Basically, that was the that was in that was in that uh, documentary. What what is the Pepe thing racist? Well, they made it racist. Yeah, like with uh, with the memes. I don't know. Yeah, there's lots of different... I don't go on, like, 4chan or Reddit. Well, no, the only reason I know it... And I sort of recognised Pepe Le Frog from social media, and then this (coughs) kind of showed it in, you know... People who use the term triggered. Triggered? Yeah, that's one of her examples. Right, okay. Gun enthusiast. Have you ever heard of a podcast called Trigonometry? Yeah. Pretty sure they use the word triggered Mm. often. Mm. They're, what, so they're incels? Well, this woman doesn't I wouldn't know be what, surprised. She doesn't know what she's talking about. Yeah, I, I've seen them. I mean, crikey. Right, face for podcasting. Exactly. <laughs> they make us look like the Chippendales. <laughs> true, though. Yeah. Fell out the ugly tree, them two. Right, okay. It's every branch on the way down. Are you trying to trigger them? <laughs> I'm sure they can take a joke. Apparently uh, they're comedians. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I know, yeah. <laughs> That was the worst one. <laughs> yeah, I just found that uh, intriguing, the words she highlighted being certainly not exclusive to incels whatsoever. So all these parents, like, I know this, but some fucking 55-year-old with a kid in uni, they're going to take this on and say, oh, gosh, I've, I've heard Hard Johnny say triggered and based. Fucking hell, Mum, you're so based. That was ace. Based. You know, they're going to get the wrong idea, aren't they? Because mm. of poor messaging. She didn't even mention Chad's and Stacey's, which are definitely an incel language it? exclusive use. What's a Chad? Chad, is, uh, I, I don't know, but I think a Chad is like a, uh, an, uh, how are they would see alpha. an alpha male. Yeah. And a Stacey is a... Like a alpha female. Pretty, yeah. A pretty female. Like Valley girl. Like me and my wife. Absolutely. Why are um, <laughs> Sometimes she listens to this. I, I've never, uh, I can't say I pictured you and your wife as a Chad and a Valley girl. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, That's pretty much how we live our lives. Okay. I was like the quarterback in the chess team. <laughs> <laughs> Classic. Oh my god! I can't even play chess. I can't even remember. Oh uh, yeah, there's no quarterback piece for a start. 
I think if my kids started talking about being red pilled and triggered anyway, I'd start to worry they were listening to podcasts. Po- oh, podcasts! <laughs> Just in general, it's <laughs> a whole different area. That'll be next week on uh, this morning. I have to yeah. tell if your child's listening to podcasts. Oh dear. Anyway, let's hope the incels don't try and you know form a killer fight. ISIS attempting to create a killer fight. There's absolute scenes on the Antiques Roadshow this week. Oh. Do you see it? The guy turned up with the 1977 What's prop um, twin ion fighter pilot helmet. Ooh. Oh. Twin ion engine. What did I say? Twin, twin ion, ion fighter. I- ion helmet. Tie fighter helmet. Tie fighter helmet. Yeah, from the film. The one. You, one of the ones used in the film. I collect original props and costumes, uh, and I have things like. Batarangs from Batman and uh, Wolf of PPKs from Bond films, but my true passion is Star Wars. And so I've spent many, many years uh, traveling all over the world, speaking to crew members and cast and going to prop and costume rental houses and things like that. That guy's an incel. (laughs) (laughs) Just trying to find these things and find out where they end up. And this particular piece was uh, buried in the attic with one of the senior crew members on the film who was gifted at the end of the film. So you've made it a real mission, then, to track these pieces down? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a major undertaking. I spend a lot of time doing this. And can you tell me how much you paid for it, then? Ooh. Big, big question. Oh, it depends when he bought it. Uh, a, a few, a couple of years. It's only had it a couple of years. Not going right. to be as popular as, like, an X-Wing helmet, I would say, because it's a baddies one. Well, even so... From the first film as well. How much did he pay for it? I'm I'm going to say thousands in the thousands. Yeah, I'm going to say twelve thousand. Hang on, pounds. I not said my number. I'm going to say eleven thousand nine hundred and ninety-nine pounds ninety-nine. Uh, I paid a few thousand pounds for it. I'm certainly prepared to say that. Yeah, I mean, it's. Uh, and how long ago are we talking? Oh, I've just owned it for a few years now. It's. Difficult to value, but having spoken to our experts, they reckon. Oh, you can do this, you know, when you watch it on the. You press the red button and you can say the price. That's what we do. Yeah. Um, oh, I do like Antiques. Do you want me to go first again so you can, uh, you know, <laughs> I'll, 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 go, I'll, go, um, I'll go first. And he reckons. What does Eric Knowles? £10,000. I'm going to go £65,000. Fucking idiot. Oh. 40 to 50,000. What? Yeah, I think, I think. On this a, bit of yeah. plastic. <laughs> she fucking knocks Don't on it. Don't fucking touch it. Yeah. Get a laugh. fucking <laughs> 40 to 50. 50 grand. Fuck off. And then she fucking taps it like that. Oh, well, she wouldn't do that to a Rembrandt, would she? No. Oh, you think you're out of yeah, I'm going to have to watch that episode now and see see his face while she knocks it. Do you want to hear it? Oh, yeah, it drops. His face drops. Yeah. Like that. It's not a hand solo in carbonite from the original mould, though, is it? No, you can like, oh, see the out- outline of his uh, camel toe. Spit, <laughs> spit on his face. Who wants to hear Andy Byrne and Mayor of Manchester singing Wonderwall? Can I hear Andy Peters singing Wonderwall? <laughs> no, that didn't happen. <laughs> um, I mean, I don't think we really have a choice. What? Can't listen to it. Is it too loud? No, I heard it the first time. It's just terrible. Oh. (laughs) 
Sing the song. The king in the north. The king in the north. The king in the north. Did you uh, see the video of him doing it? No. It was so fucking staged, man. Uh, oh, no, I won't do it. But yes, I'm going to do it. He starts with the guitar and he Let's can't play And then uh, he gives the guitar over and the guy says, Oh, do you know Wonderwall? He goes, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll sing Wonderwall. And he goes, oh, he starts, he starts, he goes, oh, I better, I'll just, just let me check the li- lyrics. Pulls his phone out. Two days, like he had it on, there's a wallpaper on his phone. <laughs> it's so badly staged. <sighs> it just makes you cringe. Ick. You might have done a butt dial, re- a really accurate butt yeah. dial, Googling <laughs> Wonderwall <laughs> lyrics. <laughs> no. No, <laughs> not having it. I can't have children with a whore. Okay. Never mind. The album by Nirvana. Oh, yes. 30 years after its release, Nirvana's Nevermind remains one of the most successful recordings of all time. An iconic album that marked an entire generation, but none more so than Spencer Alden. Three decades on, the baby pictured on the cover says he suffered lifelong damage as a result and is filing a lawsuit for sexual exploitation. It's, it's a trip. There's a lot of people that um, have seen my baby penis as a baby. <laughs> I went to a... a lot of people have seen uh, my uh, youngest son's baby penis now as well because of the penis dance. Yeah. <laughs> Just, you know, count yourself lucky he wasn't on one of the biggest selling albums of the 90s. 30 million copies, yeah. Yeah. When I read it. A baseball game on opening day at the Dodgers and I was looking out at all the people and I was like had a moment where I was like man all these people have seen my baby penis Alden is now asking for $150,000 from each of the defendants which include Universal Music Group rock legends Dave Grohl and Courtney Love as well as the photographer who took the original picture (laughs) there's a lot of people that um have seen my baby penis as a baby. It, it, works, it, it definitely works well as a soundbite. All these people have seen my baby penis. It implies he has a baby penis as an adult <laughs> as well. <laughs> a lot of people have seen my baby penis as a, as a baby, he, he puts in. As All a... these people have seen my baby penis. But press this one. There's a lot of people that um, have seen my baby penis as a baby. So he puts it in because he's obviously clicked, hasn't he? Thinking, yeah. <laughs> I don't want people to know that I've got a baby penis. Epic dub. Yeah. Epic. Absolutely. 
Well, he's run out of money, hasn't he, basically? So, um, <laughs> he's an artist. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> so, you know, that's red flags already, isn't it? In terms of having any money. Mm. Um, um, it, yeah, I think it's like, the, obviously the lawyer has come out and said like some ridiculous things like he was sexually exploited or and like the imagery was around sort of um, paying the baby for sex and all this carry on. Uh, he's no one I know. ever thought that. <laughs> I know, yeah. It's so obvious, isn't it, what it means. I think the issue is, is well, not the issue, but I don't think they were paid and he contends that um, they were unaware as to why he was taking the photos. They didn't know it was for an album cover, is what you reckon? Well, he probably didn't uh, at the time, being a baby and all. <laughs> well, his mum and dad knew the photography, you see, and they, invited, they had the pool party. <coughs> at, well, this is what I read. He should like, be angry at his parents for not getting, cutting a sweet royalty. He probably deal. already sued them. He would have uh, done. It, it sounds like the type. He's milked them. Um, milked them dry. So, yeah, and then, it, like, when it was... Uh, um, it's sort of like this album appeared in it. Hang on a minute, that looks a bit like our son. Um, they had no idea that he was using it for that. Mm. Baby penis. But that's the story, isn't it? So, you know, I assume the photographer has a different one. Well. You would think. What did he get? A grand? Uh, nothing. He got a teddy bear and a gold disc. Oh, I, yeah. thought, I thought he got paid a thousand pounds. Who got paid a grand then? I don't know. Well, someone did. It said in the story. All oh, right, okay. Someone got a grand. Well, then he's been paid then, hasn't he? He's been reimbursed. Well, that's it, exactly. Not everyone gets <laughs> bloody... Millions. <laughs> yeah. Lifetime royalties yeah. or whatever. I watched a good documentary about David Geffen. It's quite interesting. I'd love to know what Dave Grohl said immediately upon hearing of this news. <laughs> yeah, just, that's given 150 grand, probably. Uh, yeah, how much do you want? A million. Take Two million. It. Uh, have you, uh, either of you watched 321 or 123? Dusty Benton. Um, like Paul McCartney and Rick Rubin? No. It's a bit sort of, I don't know, I can't put my fingers on it. Crap. A bit kind of up, up, up their own arses, I think. Uh, Paul McCartney, you say? Yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Does he have a, a reputation for it being up his own arse? Well... Does he? Paul McCartney does. It's not yeah. even the real Paul McCartney, you know. Yeah, he, he died. He died he? fucking years ago. Before Abbey Road. Yeah. Did he? Yeah, that's yeah. why he's wearing no shoes in the photo. Duh. Duh. Where's yeah. the CIA? That baby from the Nirvana photo is not wearing any shoes either. Oh, this yeah. could be an imposter. I think you've just red pilled. What have you done with <laughs> Big Chungus? <laughs> Triggered. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right, okay, are we done? I don't know, I'm done. Yeah, that's no. probably it. You know, we're not mentioned, you know, in the Middle East. <laughs> no. No. So shit shit just, let, just let the uh, mainstream media cover that. Yeah, because you're, you're not getting the truth anyway, are you? Who knows what's going on over there? No, I know you. Do you see the photo of Biden like this in the press conference? <laughs> no. Do you not see that when he got asked, he got questioned in the press conference? Did he, get, did he have a sad face? He just went, oh. Sad, but, oh, I need to go to bed. And he just stayed there for about 20 seconds. Micro snake. Oh, no. Yeah, shock horror. He's not fit for the job. It's like we didn't know this during the campaign before, you know. Yeah. Most popular president ever, 81 million votes. Yeah. Well, there you go. 
Kamala will be taking over soon, I think. Yeah, yeah. she's ready. Yeah. She's ready. <laughs> That's what she does. Really? She has a famous cackle, yeah. Oh, Cackling like, Kamala. That's most excellent. I like that. Didn't like laughing in really uh, awkward places when talking about subjects awkwardly, and she'll do this uh, horrible like laugh. And they're all fucking psychopaths, aren't they? I'm sure they are. How else do you get there? Um, don't know. Oh, hard work. Kiss my moister cunt. Kiss the moister cunt. Kiss the my the moister cunt. What was that in Dutch? Um, Which is my best side? Do you know that, Ben? No, I do now. I, I ask, what, what, which is your best side in Dutch? Kiss my moister cunt. Wow. Really? Yeah. That's, uh, should listen to your own podcast. When you're not here. For that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Should we go then? Right. Yes. Is it that time? Yeah, I'll see you in uh, seven days. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? Should hope so. Praise Jabalon. A ravager never flies alone. What's that mean? Oh, it's just something I heard when I was watching uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. Oh, it's the blue guy with the magic wand. Yondu. <laughs> Yondu, yeah. This is such a crock of shit. Okay. See you next week then. Bye. Bye. Ronnie Bickering. Oh, Ronnie Bickering. Oh, Ronnie Bickering. Who the fuck's that? Yeah, me. What did you do with Big Chungus? Why can't you just go to a restaurant and have a nice bottle of red and just behave your fucking self? Why do you have to go to a fucking pub call, mate? Sunday, I think, is going to be quite a nice day. Yep, at home. At home. He's Otherwise, my moisture cut.